Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.L. Levy. And that's at A.L. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is my good friend, Chris Kelly, who's one of the founding members of Galactic Empire, playing lead guitar as Lord Vader, as well as his technical death metal project, Illustrium, and a dude who releases solo guitar music under his own name. Chris also plays as a touring guitarist for a super secret band, that's really, really big. That's all I can say. And among his endeavors with his projects, the band, Chris recently released a new track, Sunbreak, for his solo project, as in the works on a new project with some of the members from Galactic Empire. All that said, there's a huge announcement for Illustrium that uh, just came out. Anyways, I present you Chris Kelly. Chris Kelly, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. What's up? Hello. Hello, Christopher. We've never officially met, but What's we up? have spoken. Brown, my dude. I know. It's it's awesome. Uh, we Yeah, we've never had the chance to like properly chat, so I'm stoked. Well, chat. <laughs> He's got a nice voice. <laughs> it's, about, it's about time. Why don't you guys just go ahead and properly chat? Just do it. You're the you're the host. You got to start the chat. I can't. I'm not. I'm not an icebreaker like that. <laughs> okay, here's one. What's the stupidest, most repetitive, redundant, idiot question you get asked in interviews or that your friends get asked in interviews all the time that make you think to yourself, what the hell is wrong with this person? Can't they just read Wikipedia or read every other interview I've ever done? What's the number one? That see that that those questions stopped happening after I left Galactic Empire. So like I haven't had any of those annoying questions. But like the most annoying one that I would get was always like uh, it basically it was any question that was posed as if I were actually Darth Vader. Oh god. Um, yeah, dude, it was fucking cringe, man. Like, l- look, I get it. I was in a goofy band. Like, most of the interviews that I were doing were, like, for, like, Star Wars-related publications. Like, I'm not above, like, the nerd talk, you know? But, like, people would be like, oh, so, like, what are your plans for the rebel scum? I'm like, I don't fucking know, man. I'm not actually Darth Vader. Like, <laughs> like um, I, I, I guess, I guess kill them i don't know but like you know i don't want to put that in print either so like yeah yeah i would get i would get a lot of weird questions like that i guess more generally as well like you know what about you brown you must do a lot of (laughs) the most annoying frustration frustrating question for me is like so what's the band up to it's like how can you be that just open like it's so unspecific right not not only is that like completely just annoyingly vague and broad (laughs) and like proves that the person's not actually interested in what you're doing. But, but like, 
but like what the f- fucking what every other band is up to you know <laughs> like we like we make music and then we tour in normal circumstances you know we make music and then we play shows and sometimes there's videos involved like <laughs> what the fuck are you up to i always hated what, what are your influences Oh, that one's really fucking annoying, too. Yeah. Like, who the fuck cares what I listened to when I was 17? Like, do you really care what I listened to when I was 17? Like, really? I don't care what you listen I to sure now. I fuck <laughs> don't give a fuck what anybody listened to when they were 17. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also, again, that's one of those annoyingly open-ended questions, like, super broad questions. Like, if you were a little bit more specific of, like, you know... Was there a specific guitar player that like sent you down the path that you're on or whatever, like that kind of thing? Like at least that's a little bit more like personalized as opposed to like it is, but at least it, at least it's a little bit closer. It's not just like what's your favorite band, you know? It's like I'm almost thirty. I've completely forgotten what my favorite <laughs> band is, you know. Well, one thing I'll <laughs> notice when we have dudes or dudettes come on here who are in the middle of a press cycle and they've never done a podcast before, they'll default into that mode of giving answers like they would in an interview. So they'll start talking about their influences and like that kind of stuff. And it's like this alarm, this like alarm goes off in my head. Of like <laughs> got to get them. They're on autopilot. Turn the autopilot <laughs> right. off. Like they derail. Yeah. Yeah. Get them off this train of thought right now. Cause yeah, they'll, they'll start talking about like, how like the first guitar they got and like what they were listening to when they were 13 and like and it's like dude you probably said this eight other times today and you're not even right. thinking about it let's move on right <laughs> yeah yeah i've never i've never had the luxury of like preparing for interviews like even even in galactic empire like i was the one that did like 99 percent of the interviews um but they were all usually set up at the last minute i wasn't like given the questions ahead of time which is why i so frequently got like randomly hit with a guy with a tape recorder and being like so like you know How's Palpatine? (laughs) Just just go fuck yourself. That's how he's doing. I don't know. You know? Um, Yeah. So, yeah. Dude, like. How is Palpatine? (laughs) I I think he's finally dead after the last movie. I don't know. I only saw it once. I want to say, though, just talking about interviews, one of the best interviews I ever did was when we had to answer the questions with Cards Against Humanity. What? Yeah, that was like, it was really funny. You played Cards Against Humanity, right? Well, yeah, yeah, the game is fun, but that sounds like the worst fucking interview Honestly, ever. Yeah, it was terrible. It was the funniest fucking thing in the world. Sounds to me like you were just doing so many bad interviews that one <laughs> slightly different idea <laughs> made you well, be I like, mean, wow, like, this could, is cool. Well, I, okay, I could see how it could be funny, but I don't see how it could oh, overall be good. No, it wasn't good. Because I think... But- <laughs> Okay, yeah, because, like, I, I could see it being, like, objectively hilarious of, like, oh, so what are your plans after this tour? And you're like, geese, you know? Like, <laughs> I could see how that would be kind of funny and ridiculous, but, yeah, that but that makes for, like, the worst interview imaginable. The questions weren't necessarily based on music, though, either. That's even worse. I, I actually I enjoy, I enjoyed of. it because it was different and it made me laugh, which is something, for the most part, most interviews don't do. Fair enough, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. You know, AOL has has made the important distinction between like the interview setting and the podcast setting. Like you can kind of go on tangents on long form kind of open conversation as opposed to like a specific if somebody's doing a specific interview for like a magazine or something, I'm like at like ask me questions about what I'm here doing. You know, like 
don't like I don't want to play a card game or something because like this is like this this we're not we're not just like sitting down and having a chat like this is like gonna be like printed somewhere like I don't I don't want my fucking cards against humanity answers like on metal hammer or whatever it is you know well those those like interviews for a for print or for a very specific thing I also think that those could be better. They are better in other types of publications. Like when you see an interview, a long form interview in something like Newsweek or the Playboy interviews or something, they're like really, really well written interviews. It's not just stuff like, so describe the new album to us. Well, it's heavier and darker than last time. Right. We we went all out. Yeah, we went and- all out. All our feelings, all our negative feelings that were bottled up came out this time. No stone left unturned. This song's about lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) How how many local bands are going to be uh, introducing songs like that in Texas next week? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this 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 entire album is about... this, yeah, this entire album is about my first power outage. <laughs> and last for some people. <laughs> right, yeah, seriously. Yeah, like, you've been kind of productive, though, right, during lockdown? Yeah, I'm doing my best, you know. Obviously, uh, you know, my, my main gig is as a hired gun, and so that is not a thing until otherwise specified. Um, but, uh, yeah, ju- I mean... Uh, <laughs> Like I think all any kind of musician or creative person can do uh, in this situation is just try to pump out as much shit as they can and keep themselves busy. You've been doing that? To the best of my ability, yeah. Well, what does that mean? Well, the two projects that I've been working on most publicly have been, you know, the band that I've been in since high school at this point, so it's like over a decade. Uh, it's called Illustrium. We did a... And what are your biggest influences? <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay Lohan. So you put out an EP in November. Yeah, put out an EP in November. It was November, right? Yeah, yeah, and it was. That was just like that. That was the sort of uh, like last minute lockdown situation um, because we had a whole other record uh, done and ready to go, but a, a development came up that required us to push the release back to to later this year. Um, so, and we had never had any kind of like a deadline for anything before so we just kind of took it as a challenge of like all right let's try to write like record just completely finish and roll out an ep ourselves within a few months and see if we can get it to the standard that we've been trying to keep you know thus far because up until now i mean it's been five years or more than five years it will be at this point since our last full length and it was like four or five years in between uh that from the first one that we did so um We've always like really taken our time and you mixed you know, it, right? I did. Yeah, yeah. I remember. You've gotten better. Thanks. I hope so. I, I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So we've always really we've always taken a really long time to put things out and just like really kind of dug in and and made sure that like that there's no filler. There's no like at least you know obviously from our perspective and our opinion that there's there's nothing that sounds like it was phoned in or that you know oh i could have done without that song or how do you judge that because like sometimes at least in my experience like i'll think that i'm cutting out all the filler and then i end up with a minute and 30 long song (laughs) 
Oh, we it's it's a complete opposite for us. I mean, our like the EP actually had some of our shortest songs ever, and it's it you know we're not like a dream theater band where we're constantly pumping out like fifteen minute songs, but like we do like our average song length is anywhere between like five and seven minutes usually. It, but because we have songs that kind of get a little tangential sometimes, like it's very easy. It's very easy to sort of fall into like the local band trap of like. Like I have this cool riff and then I have this cool riff and they should go together regardless of whether or not they work. And so uh, we try to avoid any kind of tempo changes. And if there are tempo changes, we we make sure that there's a, a, a smooth transition into them and a good reason for it. Yeah. You know, we, we spend a lot of time uh, like really focusing on the on the minutia of everything. Wait, but how do you know you're not cutting out too much? Like when you say you're getting rid of the filler, what I was saying was when I go to, when I go to cutting out filler, my problem has been, I go nuts and then I end up cutting out too much. And at the time I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, there's no filler in this song. It's just all gas, no brakes. Fuck. Yeah. But then the next day I listen and I'm like, there's nothing here. The verse goes twice and then there's a chorus and then there's a solo for like four bars and it's over. <laughs> this is just right. <laughs> so so I guess it depends on on what you define as filler. When I when I mean yeah. filler, I mean I, I mean uh like if you if you were to listen to an album that came out like back in like the the seventies or eighties, like especially in the eighties where like, like they where really you're st- broadcasting from right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where like they really started focusing on singles and things like that. You often notice that like the first three or four songs are really sick and then like the last two songs are pretty cool, or sometimes not even the last two. It's just the first three or four songs are really sick and then the rest of the album's just kind of there. And that's what we try to avoid. We try to make sure that like at least for us that every song like gets us stoked you know yeah Um, which is the way it should be if we're right i agree because i mean i you know obviously we live in an in an age now where we live in a society we we live in an era now where where you know the the focus very much is on the single and it's how how many singles or how much content can you put out at a regular pace and things like that but like we still like listening to entire records you know you say that Um, i still love you say that but in progressive metal, I still think there's a lot of riff salads going on where they haven't really thought about the structure. They've actually focused on that's a cool riff that goes with that, even if it doesn't work. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm just talking like, I, I like personally, like if I, if I hear a sick record, like I, I like to listen to that record front to back. Oh yeah, of course. Like if we're, if we're talking about progressive stuff, uh, like two, two of the more modern bands would be periphery and BT bam. Like I think parallax two was a fucking masterpiece. And anytime I put like, I will not put on, uh, goodbye to everything unless I'm planning on listening through the entire fucking record, (laughs) you know, unless I have a long, unless I have a long drive where I can like engross myself in it. And same thing with like when periphery put out juggernaut, like that came out when I was in college, some, some year of college. Um, and, uh, that was a a really important record, uh, for me and, and for some of the other guys in the band as well. Um, so like, especially kind of concept based records, like that kind of thing, we really like those sort of immersive, um, kind of, uh, releases. And so we like to be able to kind of like sit back and just listen to the entire thing. And so even though we understand that when we put something out, uh, you know, we're going to have to push, uh, you know, a couple singles and inevitably there's going to be people who are like, Oh, I like that one song. And they just listen to that one. Like but people can do what they want, but we want to make sure that like after, you know, after that period, uh, elapses where you 
avoid listening to your record like the fucking plague because you've been working on it for so long that like whenever we decide to go, you know, individually go back and oh, I want to listen to that record today that like we don't skip anything. Yeah. You know, like we want to hear everything uh, in order. So that's what I mean about cutting out filler, you know, uh, making sure that every single song is as strong as it can possibly be. And if it's not, it doesn't make it. It's weird that that is like a focus that isn't a focus on certain bands to me because trying to (laughs) just just, thinking that. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, like you say you've got eight songs and then some bands will just be like, let's just get two more songs together out of the scrap riffs that we cut out and make two songs just to get it up to 40 minute record or whatever. I never really understood that mindset. Yeah, they feel they they feel the need that like it has to be an even ten songs or something. You know, they ha- they have this idea in their head of what the album should be. But like, I mean, there's plenty of bands. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, runtime is a factor. But you know, look at is it though for labels? Yeah, for the label, if it's a label band, yeah. Well, yeah. So record contracts do state that there's a runtime, but uh, Raining Blood was 28 minutes long. Planetary Duality was 30 minutes long, and that's a fucking masterpiece. But that's the thing I think. Well, I mean, if you if you want to get technical about like what the actual definitions are, I can't remember what the like 100 exact parameters are. But it's like more than X amount of songs or X amount of minutes makes it an album as opposed to an EP or or whatever it's supposed to be. Like when Between the Buried and Me put out uh, Automata, I think it's pronounced. They did that as like a double album, but each part only had like five songs on it and they weren't their longest songs. So like when I went to get the album on iTunes or Apple music or whatever, whatever I was using, I couldn't find it under the album list because the runtime under iTunes specifications didn't uh, qualify. It didn't qualify as an album. So I had to find it in the EP section, which I think like would really suck for a band. That's like, we just put out a double album and it's like, Nope, you put out two EPs. (laughs) Um, But, um, but what I'm, what I'm getting at is that is the song count, the song count shouldn't matter, no. even though like under whatever parameters or whatever it does, um, the song count shouldn't matter. You should you should want every track that you put out to be as strong as it can possibly be. And if you're dead set on having a certain amount of tracks to like fit a certain runtime or to make sure that it's considered a record or whatever, then you should spend extra time to make sure that you have strong enough tracks. Why do you think that local bands don't do that? Or they'll do this thing where they'll spend way, way too long. Like they'll go the other way. They'll spend way too long on the same songs, not improving them, just keeping them. So they'll have them for like seven years and then go record them and then they'll keep playing them. And, but they'll never change them around. They'll never check if there's filler. They'll never, uh, never really edit the songs at all. It just, the, just the first thing they wrote is the song. Right. Is it just because they don't know better? I don't think so. I think, yeah. I mean, and, and I also think it could be a result of, I mean, depending, because you listed a couple different potential scenarios there. In the case of, like, having a song, whether it's good or bad, but having a song and holding on to it. Like, I, I remember when I was growing up, and started hearing, you know, things from like Guns N' Roses and stuff. Like I remember the first time I heard November Rain and my guitar teacher was like, that was like one of the first songs that Axl Rose ever wrote. It's true. It, it didn't make it onto Appetite for Destruction. Like he held on to it until he could make it perfect. Don't cry too. Yeah. So I think that like sometimes and like that's that's a valid approach, you know, like if you've like I've got this really sick song, but it doesn't really fit with this other group. So I'm going to hang on to it. Yeah. But let me let me say this, though. We have no idea because there was no uh, 
Reaper back then. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. he would have been using Reaper and a Get Good Drums pack. <laughs> <laughs> Since that didn't exist back in Axel's day. What we know of November Rain existing pre-Appetite for Destruction might not be a lot like the version that came out and became like the biggest song on the planet. It could have just been two lines from it. It could have just been like some shitty version, but with like some of the same lyrics. Like there's, we don't know is what I'm saying. So when you hear those stories, I understand what people mean. You never know. This could be like your big song 10 years later. But at the same time, those examples, I don't think are good examples. I think when a lot of people hear that, they think, wow, November rain with like, how long is it? Like 12 minutes long or something or eight minutes long? I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a, super it's a long, long with all these solos and the piano and like, uh, and then Slash playing in a graveyard unplugged and then Axel dying and like coming back to life. I know that that's the video, but like, that's what <laughs> I think about with that song, all that stuff um, that people associate with that song. That's not necessarily what the song was like um, originally. It could have just literally been like two chords and lyric. Mm-hmm. Like we, we don't know is what I'm saying. Right. I think you kind of answered your own question in a way because you're talking about Reaper. And I think that that's the, the difference between local bands that we think about when we you know first started touring is that that kind of, you know, people weren't really self-recording at that point in time. Do you know what I mean? It was rarer than it is now. And I think well, they had four tracks and stuff. But I yeah. know, but it's a little bit different, isn't it? Like you can't imagine a local band sitting there with a tape recorder, cutting the tape up to try moving different sections of their song around. So I think that the reason why maybe now local bands probably sort that stuff out better is because they have the option to self-record, which obviously back then they probably didn't they'd never recorded it couldn't afford it so they just kept playing the same thing over and over because they thought it would do whereas november rain had a producer well but uh, i see see here the thing so so i understand the validity like like one you know again you're right we we don't know but i would think i i feel like sort of like best case scenario for november rain is like axel rose even if even if the whole song was written out it was just him and a piano and whether they didn't have the budget or whether it was like too far of a of a, like too far out of left field for everything that was on appetite or it was just like i have this grandiose vision for this song and we're not able to make it happen on this record so i'm gonna wait right and like wait until i have the right producer and the right resources and whatever to make this song what i know it can be now you can make a song what you know it can be or pretty damn close right you spend a couple months on urm you know <laughs> and like you learn your shit and you can make it a couple months six months hey at least yes. stay six months <laughs> so, yeah point being there are so many resources now that like you can say i want an orchestra in this song and chances are like not only do you have a million different libraries available to you but you, whatever fucking daw you're using has its own stock orchestral plugin you know like or, or some stock thing that has strings and horns and whatever you know some sampler so you can put what you want into a song and so i think you know brown to your point about the, you know them not having the ability to record themselves i think that that, that there's less of an excuse to do that now because you have the ability to move sections around and figure out what works and what doesn't work. I mean, ultimately, yeah, I think the answer to your original question, Al, is just that, yeah, it's it's a matter of not knowing better. It's, you know, either you heard, either somebody told you that this guy did it this way and so you feel that you need to do it that way or, 
you know, you have this song and you think it's sick, uh, but then you have this other idea that you think could go with that song, even though it already came out. And so now instead of writing more songs, you're going to put out another version of that song that's been improved. The locals band, local bands do that shit all the time, you know, um, and I, I think it's just a matter of like not having the right priorities and not having a proper sort of sense of direction on how to like move your your band and your craft forward. What would be your priorities if you were in, say, you were starting from scratch right now in a local band? Songs, 100% songs. I mean, you know. God, they hate hearing that. <laughs> especially, uh, yeah, right? Well, yeah, because, and, and look, like like I said, the, ba- the band that I'm still writing shit with now, it's a total pra- total passion project. Like, we were a local band, too. You know, uh, it's it's only going to be in the in the very near future that that ends. But we've been a local band for 10 fucking years. So I know all the pitfalls of the local bands. There's a difference between a local band and an unsigned band. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. If a dude who's in like several signed projects and uh, can we just say that you're in a big band? I can say that the band that I play for, it's not actually a secret that I play for the band. Uh, It's just the way that business is done with this particular organization, particular company, you can figure out who it is on the internet. All the fans know who all the different members are. Um, it's not some, it, it's just a matter of like who is representing the band in interviews and things like that. Like they just, they like to, to, to keep, um, they, they like to kind of keep control on that. Okay. So I can say that, you know, under normal global circumstances, I am fortunate enough to have a gig that pays my bills. I'm able to make a living playing guitar. I can say that I work for a band and a company that is run exceptionally well um, and has put together a team of people that is intimidatingly good at everything that they do. And being a part of that team, having the privilege to be a part of that team is is both a constant source of uh, motivation and insecurity. <laughs> um, I can imagine. So that So that being the case, that you do that, and then um, you had another signed band. I would consider projects that you have now not to be local, but to be unsigned. And there's a big difference. That's true. That's fair. Big, big difference. So when I think about a local band, I don't think about a band that uh, that has professionals in it who just haven't gotten it signed yet. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, but but that's the thing. Like, it took 10 years for it to be that, you know, a few years ago. We, I mean, basically, until Galactic Empire took off, we probably would still be considered a local band. Um, so, point being, like, I understand, I understand the progression of that life. I understand the pitfalls that you fought. Like, I was the guy. Like, obviously, like what we always wanted to write great songs. Like, I, I like to think that even though we had to develop our, our our knowledge and understanding of what a good song really was, I like to think that we did put a big emphasis on the songs. Like, we always made sure that we liked the songs that we were putting out. So, like, that, that is one thing that a lot of local bands don't really focus on. They want to they wanna look good. But I, I was the one guy in the band who, like, wanted there to be a look. And this is before we, we didn't start out as a death metal band. It was much more of, like, a metalcore side of things. So, like, I wanted everyone to look the same. And I wanted to have banners on stage. And, like, you know, we all headbang at the same time. And, you know, things like that. And some of that stuff can be cool. 
depending on the project. But a lot of people just kind of focus on that stuff first. Like they focus on like, oh, let's let's go into our garage and build a bunch of boxes for us to stand up on, <laughs> regardless of whether we're actually on a stage or we're on a fucking VFW hall floor. Um and let's put some lights in those boxes, like, and let's not worry about whether or not we can play our songs. I think the other pitfall, again, aside from the songwriting thing, is actually knowing whether or not you can play your stuff. Because so many of these bands, even today, I mean, I still get clients and stuff when I'm doing my recording stuff that they're just used to jamming in a room together. They write the song in a room. It's loud. They've got amps, you know, and, and live drums. And like, you know, nobody's on in-ears or anything like that. They're not even wearing earplugs. Everything's just <laughs> fucking cranked. And like everybody knows how that shit goes like in a local band rehearsal like you start with your amp at like four or five and then by the end of the <laughs> rehearsal it's like eight or nine because not only are you <laughs> suffering hearing loss but like you're just constantly like I need to be heard more and then everyone else is like I also need to be heard more and then it just turns into this it's like it's just the same cacophony of noise getting louder and louder so they come in and then they don't play the riffs the same way or the singer doesn't realize that his technique isn't right or you know they've never played to a click or whatever you know like think there, there's a million different ways that that you know things can go wrong in that department but i think a lot of a lot of bands coming up don't spend the amount of time necessary to make sure that like you know they write good songs the songs sound good when they come out and that they can play them live you know, those are the three, the those are the three big things. Yeah, the basics. Right, right. They should, yeah, it seems like a no-brainer, but it's not. But you know what's interesting is like when you get a, you know, legendary basketball coach or something, you always hear about when a coach goes and uh, takes a team from worst to first or like really like revolutionizes a team and you hear about what they did. Generally, it's get everybody doing the basics again. <laughs> get everybody really, really good at the basics again. Like identify the five basics and have everybody make those basics their priority. And then I know that with guitar, every time that I felt like I was slipping and wanted to get good again, all I would do was drill basics. And then suddenly, boom, better. I just, I feel like uh, people put the cart ahead of the horse a lot in life period, but especially in music where people have lofty, lofty aspirations, don't always seem to know how much work is involved and are a little bit turned off by the amount of work involved and they want to skip steps straight up. They just want to cut corners and skip steps. But those basics that you describe are the way in the light, basically. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I think another another big issue is comparing yourselves to bands that you're a fan of. And what I mean by that, it's, it's not a bad idea to, like, that in and of itself isn't the issue. It's the way that they do it. They, they compare the wrong things. So you can compare, like, I would think there's a big thing that you should look at for like a big band that you aspire to be is figure out what they don't do yeah and make sure that you also don't do those things whether it's the way that they behaved when you met them at their last show whether it's you know the way that they you know pick their their tour support or whatever it is you know you figure out the things like if you're doing something that a bigger band doesn't do or that a lot of bigger bands don't do it's probably not something you should do right like what <laughs> uh, of course yeah you got now, now I'm, like, I'm saying all this shit like i know what i'm talking about but you do 
for instance, for songwriting, like as a producer who handles a lot of local bands, they'll come in, we'll, you know, get through the, the verse in the intro or the intro in the verse, and then it'll be time for the pre-course or the course or whatever. And it's a completely different tempo. <laughs> and they'll be like, well, Dillinger Escape Plan does that. And you'll be like, okay, but that's not like you are not like unless you are aspiring to be exactly like Dillinger Escape Plan. And like, it's really hard to be that band. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be thinking of like, well, you know, Dillinger Escape Plan doesn't go from a thrash metal part to a fucking ballad between two sections in the same song. So like we should we shouldn't write something like that. You know what I mean? Like I'm not explaining it very well, but like they'll use if they're doing something wrong or somebody who's more experienced tells them that like, hey, that's not a good idea. Hey, you shouldn't structure a song like that. Hey, don't act that way on stage. Don't tell that guy in the crowd to go fuck himself. Don't flip off the sound guy in the back (laughs) of the room, you know, like that kind of shit, you know, like but but then they'll be like, oh, well, I saw this video, you know, James Hetfield got all pissed off and he said that the sound guy was a cunt, you know, like it's like well okay but that's that's fucking metallica like that sound guy he was calling a cunt is the sound guy that he personally pays yes. to be there <laughs> you know? like it's not the guy it's not the guy who's who's just stuck mixing the local band until the headliner gets on and then he doesn't get to mix anymore because the headliner brought their own engineer you know so um it's it, a lot of it is is behavior based and that like that's there's definitely a learning curve there like you have to play shows you have to do the pay to play thing where you're opening for bigger bands and you have to see how those bands conduct themselves like with how quickly they get themselves on and off stage and how and how they present themselves and how they interact with people and um especially with like people in the venue and the promoter and things like that and just you know don't get too big for your britches leave your egos at the door like all that kind of shit you know like learn how big bands conduct themselves in as many capacities as you possibly can and try to emulate that as opposed to like well we have to have you know like i mentioned that idea of like boxes that we're standing on you know like oh well we have to have extra risers for all of us to be on because august burns red has those (laughs) it's like august burns red august burns red didn't have those when they were at your stage you know they didn't have those when they were starting out they have those now because people are stoked when they see those guys a little bit higher no one gives a shit if you're a couple feet higher off the ground you know there is quite something magical about watching a local band on those though <laughs> oh yeah yeah magical because comedy. they haven't yeah yeah because they haven't figured it out it depends that's, that's actually it people, depends people, okay right if the local band is wicked which does happen Fairly often, I would say. Every good big band was a local band, so yeah. Yeah, that to me actually says, right, this band has their shit together, fair play. But if they do that and the songs are really bad, that's when it's uncomfortable. Well, the other thing that they do, especially when they have a lot of stage props, bands will spend a lot of, like there'll be one one guy in the band who's like has a good job or or his parents want to funnel money into the band, which like I'm not shitting on that. Like if you have parents that are supportive of what you do, like take advantage of it. Stay at home until you're Um, 40, do it. (laughs) <laughs> right yeah you know like it's uh like I, I it's it's funny when i hear people just like oh well he had rich parents it's like oh so so like you're you're just mad that he got better christmas presents than you. Like, it's not, you know? um you know like didn't actually have anything to do with the band the band the band's either good or bad yeah um but uh but they'll they'll spend a lot of time on their stage props they got all these lights and they got their risers and things that they can jump off of and they've got their moves or whatever but it's very clear that each 
member of the band has only thought about what they will do with whatever that prop is or whatever that move is. I have this cool spin move. I'm going to jump off the riser at this point in the song, but they haven't coordinated it with the rest of the band. So like the guitarist will get up onto the riser and the bassist will be like, I have a wireless now, so I'm going to go to the other side of the stage and he'll go to the other side of the stage and the guitar player will be like, now's my jump point. And then he'll land on the fucking bass player. You know what I mean? Like, so like shit like that. Like if you're, if you're gonna like go out, if you're like, we need our show to be awesome and we need all these things on stage, like you better fucking figure it out. That's another thing that a band like August Burns Red does. Like you'll probably notice that if you watch their show over and over and over again, like if you follow that band on tour, I've never followed that band on tour, but I'm willing to bet that if you, if you follow them on tour, (laughs) that you'll notice that like when they're switching positions on the stage, they probably do that at similar parts in every song. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because like whether it's whether it's a conscious like this is the point, like we all agree that this is the point that we will go to different spots on the stage, or if it's just that they've done it so much that it's just sort of a natural thing that like it's just as natural as like knowing what the next riff is to play. You know what I mean? It's part of the show, it's part of the performance. You have to have that shit dialed too. Like the stage can the stage can look sick. You can spend a whole bunch of extra time loading a bunch of shit on and like be all impressive aesthetically, but if you don't know how to work that stage, it's pointless. You know, it's funny too, like when uh when bands that are, who aren't ready for it all coordinate their image, they could have the exact same image as a successful band. And for some reason they just look like a local band. It's really, really weird. There's this thing that happens once you're out there enough to where something in your vibe or maybe it's your confidence, maybe it's the glue and the bond between the members, maybe it's how comfortable they feel in their skin, maybe it's how much they feel that they own the project, like this is what we do, that we're awesome at it. Whatever it is, when a band has been at it for a long time and are really, really good at it, their image becomes very naturally a part of who they are. You can't disassociate it. When you see Demi Borgir, whether you like coarse paint and uh, weird outfits or not, that's what they look like. Right. That's what they look like. When you see a local band dressed like that, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's like, did you go to the budget Halloween shop? What's right. the deal here? It's quite bizarre. Do you think that's like a, a problem of our vision just because we associate them with being a local band? Because I've, I've thought this quite a lot. No, no, man. I remember this for my own band. I remember before we were signed trying to get matching outfits and stuff for a music video and seeing the video and being like, we look like a bunch of waiters. Like, <laughs> why, like why isn't this working? Like with these shirts and these pants, they like, it should have all worked. Like it, we should have looked really cool. Like, but we look like a bunch of fucking waiters. Like what the hell is going on? Well, I think, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned confidence, because I think all of those different, you know, potential factors that you listed all in the end come down to confidence, whether it's confidence in yourself, confidence in your band or confidence in the people in your band, right? The bands that have been doing it for a long time and they've got it nailed, they're not going on stage with anything to prove necessarily. You know what I mean? Like they still, obviously they still want to put on a good show. They want people to leave happy. They want to feel like they did a good job, right? But they're not trying to earn their stripes. You know what I mean? Like they're like, like we're going to go out there and we're going to fucking kill it. And they, and that's, that radiates from them when they're on the stage. Whereas like a local band can all wear matching outfits, but I guarantee you one guy in that band, there's always one who's like, I think wearing matching outfits is gay, you know? (laughs) And I'm only, I'm like, I'm not saying that. I I know using that as a pejorative term, I'm using it sarcastically. Right. Um, but, uh, 
Like, there's always one guy in the local band that's like, no, like, that, like I never want to do that. But he ends up going along with it anyway because the rest of the guys basically fucking beat him into submission, right? And so that's the guy, at least. And, like, so there's him on stage who's like, I fucking hate this. We're in these stupid outfits. We look like idiots. And you can tell he feels that way. And then there's the one, and then there's always the one other guy in the band who, like, was gung-ho on the outfits, but the other dude negged it so much that he's like, is he fucking right? Do we look stupid in these outfits? Oh, I forgot how to play that part. You know, like, it just, it falls apart at the seams. No pun intended, you know? Um, so, like, yeah, it all comes down to confidence. You know, I've worn some I've worn some ridiculous fucking outfits on stage. It comes down to confidence. To be fair, you have. <laughs> I was wondering, just like, do you reckon when Slipknot first came out, do you think that, everyone thought that they looked stupid with their masks on and their boiler suits. I think they did, but I don't think they thought that. Exactly, yeah. I think plenty of people plenty of people in the audience thought that, but Slipknot's attitude was, fuck you. This is this is what we do, and it's sick. If you don't think it's sick, you just don't get it. I think it is confidence, isn't it? And they won. They definitely fucking right. won. And not every, not every band wins. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they are wrong. And what's interesting is, have you seen what Slipknot looked like before Roadrunner? Before that lineup, the album self-titled lineup the local band version of slipknot Pro- probably not you're saying it like it's a profound difference and so i profound okay. <laughs> difference there's masks and stuff and there's percussionists there's not Corey taylor though there's uh there's some other guy and it's hard to watch it's like you're watching like one of these 1990s pseudo industrial pseudo metal like bondage shows or something so they couldn't they couldn't find empty kegs so they're using timbales you know yeah like it was weird (laughs) it was really weird and not good weird and uh not good weird at all actually so but the lineup that got signed is worlds better than the local version of slipknot they came a long way and i do know that a lot of people just because i was there i there when in that time period a lot of people were like oh they were masked that's stupid then they saw them live and were like this is not stupid right it's fucking terrifying this is not stupid yeah this is not stupid at all yeah it's a, it's all about confidence man you have to believe in what you're doing right that's what it is yeah you have to believe in what you're doing trust you got yeah well they, they, you hear the same shit about van halen the van i think van halen is like the most common story that i hear is like whoever discovered van halen it wasn't just because like, oh, this guitar player is doing something ridiculous. Oh, this, you know, this singer is, you know, making all these crazy high pitch noises, whatever, or like the band's really good. It's that like whoever it was saw the band play to like seven people and were like, this band's acting like they're on stage in an arena. And I think basically every local band is told that of the told that Van Halen story of like, oh, they acted like they were in front of a million people. But like and so they're like, oh, well, we got to do that. But like it's easier said than done. You know what I mean? You can do all the moves and you can like play as best as, as you can possibly play. But like, there's a different confidence that comes like, it's weird. Like I say, check your egos at the door, but you can bring your egos back when you're on stage. Do you think part of it also though, in the case of a Van Halen or whatever, that they were just tapped into the universe in a way that only like one in 10 million people can be yeah so when they brought their arena show to the club with seven people in it you know much like the way that there is a such thing as talent and some people have more of it than others just is what it is that some people can channel that 
confidence and that stage show and that we are the biggest band in the world vibe. They're just wired up for that, I think. Like, I think in the mm-hmm. case of of bands that get that huge, like, to that level, like the, the Van Halens, the Metallicas, the Slipknots, like the mega bands, there's got to be something in the way they're wired mentally that just makes them really, really, really good at being charismatic from the get-go. Because all the moves in the world aren't going to convince anybody if your charisma is not there. And I don't think charisma is something that you can really learn how to have. You can get maybe a little Mm -hmm. better at it, but you're not going to become a superstar with your charisma unless you're born with superstar charisma, in my opinion. And I mean, it's also like you don't have to have charisma to be a big band, but you have to have you have to have charisma if you want to be that type of big band. Yes. Right. The charisma, I find, also comes in conjunction with coordination. Right. (laughs) So so you can want to jump and do splits like David Lee Roth. But if you can't jump high or do splits. You know, like you shouldn't be doing that. You're going to look ridiculous. Yeah, you're going to look ridiculous, right? Like I, like if I tried to do that, I'd make a fucking fool of myself. A good example of somebody who like doesn't move a lot. I mean, basically any tech death band, right? But like I remember the first time I saw Between the Barrier to Me, I noticed that like Dusty basically doesn't move on stage. Like not, not many guys in that band do a whole lot of movements. You know, they're playing pretty complicated stuff. But like Dusty's just kind of anchored in one spot. And he's got this like this... Uh, this like scowl on his face, you know, (laughs) just like he's just in it, you know, he's just like, fuck yeah, you know. At first I thought it was boring, like he wasn't moving, but as I like, as I developed as a guitar player and and developed a love for that band, I was just like, oh, like, like that's just, that's just what he does. And like that band's super successful. So you don't have to be this band that moves around or looks particularly ridiculous or anything like that to like be successful. But if you're going to use that, like if you're going to be like, we're going to have an image that is like 100% unique to us and identifiable, like that's when the charisma really has to be there because otherwise like if it's if it's not just letting the music speak for itself and the music is the priority then like you need to have the personality to back it up and i I think the ultimate problem is that a lot of the bands coming up just don't have it i think also dusty just has this confidence again what we were talking about when he stands there he doesn't move but it's not because he's scared no he's not moving because he wants to nail those parts but he still stands 100%. like there like he's owning it right yeah he's he doesn't look timid he's no. still at the front of the stage yeah, exactly you know like and and honestly probably takes more confidence to get to the front of the stage and fucking stay there for two straight hours exactly you know? right and not not turn around once yeah. you know like just like i'm right here the whole time and mike ackerfeld is another good example of that mm-hmm. he exudes tons of confidence didn't always but uh but he exudes tons of confidence doesn't move around really he's just there fucking owning it i think that bands like that though those two particular bands opeth in particular being as big as they are i think once you've shown that you can write music that consistently good for that many years that you don't even really need to move anymore right well they never moved no they never did yeah and to be honest i I did see them in 2008 and at one point i did think i was standing and watching a dirge but they were still phenomenal Do you know what I mean? It was just that I was awaiting them to go crazy because of how uh, Ghost Reverie sounded to me. And it just required me to understand that confidence. 
Yeah, it also de- it also depends on the music that's being played. Exactly. You know, if you're listening to them play, if you listen to them play the stuff off of Ghost Reverie, it's like your fucking jaw is just on the floor because you're like, it not only is the music technically complex, but all the different layers and stuff that's going on. It like like it's just a it's a fucking masterful piece of music, you know. Whereas like um, like a band that absolutely has to move would be Dillinger. Yeah. Can right? You, can you imagine <laughs> yeah. hearing fucking Dillinger Escape Plan and everyone's just standing still? Yeah, dude. Like. <laughs> like I- like it, it would say, it just it, like the, it, instead of being like yo that was the craziest live band I've ever seen it would just be like dude these guys just stood there and it sounded like bees <laughs> you know <laughs> like it just it wouldn't land the same way you know yeah I mean I've seen I've seen Dillinger probably what ten times maybe even more over the years never had the privilege what yeah I never got I never got a chance dude seen so many broken noses saw the vocalist throwing a cab into the crowd with one arm. <laughs> I saw him, I saw him ascend to the top of a tent. I've seen him run across a crowd, everything. And I can't like that band, if they didn't do that, then I don't know what they would have done to really reinforce that music. You know, where someone like, you know, Meshuggah headbanging makes sense, follow the groove. And then bands like Opeth just standing there and actually nailing the parts and looking confident it works. And I think that that is also a good sort of, when you're a local band, it's about thinking about that. Don't just go crazy because that's what you see other local bands to do or other bands do, like your favorite bands. I think it's also about understanding what your music calls for to make it so that you, you know, expel that confidence. Right. Energy, whatever energy you're giving off is very important. If Dillinger didn't put out the type of energy both in their music and in their performance that they did, the crowd wouldn't reciprocate the same way and it wouldn't fit like a perfect example. Okay. So like the singer from Dillinger, any member of Dillinger could, you know, in the middle of the set, all right, I'm going to let these guys play and I'm going to fucking climb to the tallest thing in this building. And I'm just going to jump on the people beneath me. And I know that they're going fucking crazy enough that they're going to catch me because they're not even thinking about the fact that they're going to get hurt, you know, whereas I don't know if you guys are. Yeah. And they, and they do, but they leave and they're like, that was fucking amazing. I can't see, you know, (laughs) like, um, but like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, this rapper named Watson. Oh, but a few dude, years I was at ago, the show. I was at that show. Really? I was. At, I was about <laughs> to say this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So he's. So he's. He's this. He's this like sort of nerdy kind of like white rapper guy. Um, like you know, super like niche kind of kind of stuff. He tried to go full Dillinger. Yep. Basically, he was playing this big show and he climbed. All he he got on one of those one of those like rope ladders that the that the lighting rig guys use yep. and climbed all the way up to the top of the truss. I'm talking like like sixty feet in the air. Oh God. Like. And and jumped. I was there. I watched <laughs> like, it happen it in like... real time. I was right on the side <laughs> of the stage watching it. That was the that was the tour that happened at Alexandra Palace. I was guitar teching for while she sleeps at the time for that one show, and I just remember him going up there saying, "You can't possibly be real in thinking about jumping here because the crowd demographic <laughs> age was between probably thirteen and eighteen mainly." <laughs> So it's just like, like, you can't, you can't so do tons that. Tons of upper body strength. Dude, I think he broke a girl's neck. He, he broke, he broke her leg. Broke her leg, right. Correctly. Yeah. Cause it was just, yeah. yeah, it was, I just, which I don't know. I don't know how, like, I don't know how the legs, what broke, he landed on somebody's head, yeah. you know, but like, yeah, he jumped and like the video of it is like kind of hilarious because like usually when a guy stay, when like there's a video of a stage dive, the crowd goes nuts, right? Everyone's like, whoa. You know, yeah, no, freaking no, out. everyone tried to move out of the way. People, 
people screamed, yeah. but it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't the scream that you want to hear. It was like genuine terror. Like I don't want to catch this guy. Uh, it's a, it's a miracle that he didn't die, and it's a miracle that only some only one person's leg was broken. Yeah, miracle. Did they see him climbing up? Yeah, I yeah yeah, and they were encouraging it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, I haven't heard of that guy since that actually happened. Actually, funnily enough. Yeah, my uh Mike, uh the other guitar player in Illustrium, he's he's a huge Watsky fan, and he's the only person that I've heard mention Watsky <laughs> Yeah, I haven't heard anything about that, but that just seems like a really dumb move. Right. It's a you know, like look, I totally understand you get caught up in the moment, you might do something stupid, like it's not just in the sh- it's not just in a show setting, like people do that all throughout life, right? But like <laughs> that's a perfect exa- it's a perfect example of like the show's energy and the like the crowd reaction and the demographic and all that kind of, kind of like it's all got to come together for something like that to work. Like it's uh, you don't just have and like he could have staged he could have done a stage dive and like it might not have gone like super well, but like I'm sure some people in the front row would have caught him yeah. if he just jumped off the stage. Yeah. Saying that though, the stage barrier from the stage was quite quite away. So maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. He maybe needed maybe he needed, <laughs> he needed to make sure he could get the. He needed to make sure he could get the lateral distance. That just seems super insane. So, COVID question. You ready? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was for real. Uh, you know, it's kind of been beaten to death. But uh, you made a remark, I think, in the pre-interview, that you feel like many people struggle with. Uh, being caught in the cycle of I have so much time to do this and man I suck I have all the time and I'm not doing anything which I've heard quite a few friends of mine echo so how have you stayed positive and focused like how do you keep it away from the man I suck I'm wasting all this time I'm not doing anything what's wrong with me well let's get one thing clear I have not kept it positive <laughs> I am I am I am not a positive person unfortunately uh, I very I very much have my doom and gloom moments uh you know my you're allowed uh, you're in the 70s you know, e- everything <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, you know, everything is crumbling around me. Like, what if I don't get my job back? Uh, all that kind of shit. And for a long time, uh, when all this started for the first couple of months, you know, there were, there were two, the, the two silver linings that most, that most people have, which is, you know, you either get one or both is that I now have time to do all these things that I, that I haven't had time to do otherwise, or I get to spend time with my family that I don't usually get, which is something that a lot of touring guys uh, are probably feeling as well. The disconnect that I had a lot of the time was that if I would choose to spend the day with my family, I would spend the entire day thinking I, I, I should be working on something right now. I should be being productive and I would feel guilty for not working. And then I would also feel guilty for not being like mentally present and like in the moment with my family. And then if I would take the day to work, I would feel guilty that I was leaving my wife to handle the house by herself. No winning. Right. It's a very difficult mental state uh, to be in. Um, Honestly, the only reason, the only thing that's that's ever kind of kept me going is just the fact that I have to, and 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 that's not um, not a have to in the way that like I have to go to my job because I need money. It's like there's just it's a lot of creative people feel the same way. It's yeah. like you don't you don't write music, you don't paint, you don't do whatever you do just because you like it. You do it because there's 
something somewhere in you that's like i have to i have to do this i have to have an outlet you know um and so you know with the with the illustrium ep and i mean that you know that was a, that was another sort of, it, it was internal but it was also external in that we had all agreed that we were setting a deadline for ourselves and it had to get done so you know that was part of the thing and then the 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 sort of little solo project that i that i've launched over the last couple of months that was another thing too was like look i've always wanted to i've always wanted to do something like this and up until this point, like not only was it difficult to find the time, but it was also difficult to find the motivation to do a quote unquote solo project, mainly because I'm not a household name. You know, like I don't I I I didn't have any reason to believe and still don't have any reason to believe <laughs> that anything that I put out under my own name is just going to fucking take off. You know, like if Opeth breaks up tomorrow and Michael Ackerfeld's like, I'm putting out an album under Michael Ackerfeld, like a certain amount of copies are going to sell no matter what. Um, he's going to have his, you know, it's like Abbott, you know, he, he left immortal and he, but people still go to his shows, you know. Um, so I am not a person who has that kind of individual like draw. So it's difficult for me, you know, because I'm, I'm a very insecure person inherently. So it's very difficult for me to be like, I'm going to do a solo project and want to say that publicly because my first reaction is like cool who gives a shit but you did it anyways right the biggest exercise i think throughout this has just been make shit and put it out yeah that's that's kind of in line with my hashtag fuck it philosophy hashtag fuck it <laughs> a lot that. of urm <laughs> students will hit me up about how do you just like risk something or how do you make this thing happen that like is really scary to do or how did you overcome like imposter syndrome or any of those things just just say fuck it spoiler alert i still haven't just fuck it deal with it right you get those feelings and you say fuck it and do the thing anyways that's it that's all it is like the feelings don't go away no newsflash they might even get worse but definitely get worse you just have to get (laughs) used to saying fuck it and doing the thing yeah, I can. I mean, I can tell you firsthand, at least from a touring perspective, that my insecurities uh, did not get better going from <laughs> Galactic Empire to the band that I'm in now. Even after all this weight you've lost and how go- how good you look. <laughs> yeah, well, dude, I'm <laughs> thank you. You look beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate it. You as well. Thanks. I still, but I still have like 40 pounds to go, and then I have to tone up after, you know. So like, it's still, I still got like so much left to do. Yeah, that's the answer I give all the time. But still, uh, you look great. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, um, and thank you for your advice on shaving my head. Best advice ever. Right, you're welcome. But yeah, like you know, a lot of people think that, like you said, like once I once I quote unquote make it, you know, then like the insecurities will go. Like, no, at least not in my experience. Like. Again, you know, I mentioned before that the the team of people that I'm fortunate enough to work with are fucking good at what they do. And it's not just the band, like the band, you know, the band members and I, we all have like relatively similar resumes. You know, it's not like, like none of us were in fucking Metallica before this, you know what I mean? So like, it's not, it's not like we are like walking in like big dick swing and like, we are very much like bottom of the totem pole and in terms of, uh, work experience, you know, the guy, the guys in the crew have these ridiculous fucking resumes and have been all over the world a million times over um and i mean it's it's amazing to be around people of that caliber because you just learn you get so much like like wisdom just kind of comes off of them no matter what you know um but even the guys in the band even though you know uh like apples to apples experience wise we're we're pretty similar i just think those guys are so fucking sick that it's intimidating 
you know, and uh, like I hear, you know, the the other the other guitar player will just like like in soundcheck just fucking shred, and I'm just like I can't do that, you know, like I can't yeah, do what can. he's doing. I've heard it. I can do my own version of that, but that's the thing. Like, is it you know, like insecurity is is not often logical, and it's often it often comes from comparing yourself to somebody else. Yeah, yes. So like. Especially as a, especially as a musician, you know, if you're a guitar player and you're like, I want to be able to do what John Petrucci does, you're never going to be able to do what John Petrucci does. And if you do, then people are just like, you're just trying to be John Petrucci, right? Yep. It's difficult to grasp and and wrestle with that emotion of like, I just want to do that, but I can't. And then try to figure out that that's something where the solo project has uh, that was became my real motivation for it, which was like I've spent literally my entire life outside of Illustrium playing other people's songs i mean even within the context of illustrium like yeah i write the songs but like i'm not doing what you do brown where i like sit there and learn how to play the riff like i piece the riffs together we put the record together and then i have to learn how to play it so like my entire life my entire life has been learning songs in to some degree so when it came to like having my own voice on the instrument i had never thought about what that was i am not a big enough name for people to tell me what it is you know, so like having to figure out figure that out on my own was a bit uh, scary in its own way, but it's it's also been really helpful. But um, but up until this point, like I never really had that chance. So all I can do is compare myself to other people. The other guitar player in the project that I'm in is a fucking monster. The guy that plays bass for us is mainly a guitar player, and he does things on the instrument that make me want to fucking kill myself. And the drummer, who is a a, a relatively well known like kind of up and coming metal drummer, is the best drummer I have ever played with in my entire life. And, you know, it makes it a little better that we're not, that we're playing separate instruments. But even so, like I hear what that guy does just fucking around. And I know (laughs) that I'm not on the same level as what he's doing. You know, like I've had, I've had a lot of moments on tour where like I get really anxious and like really kind of withdrawn or sometimes, sometimes I come out like kind of acting like an extrovert, but it's really just as a result of anxiety, you know, and it can be really, crippling after a while like I, I find that often I'll go into a tour because like going into a tour I'll, I'll be like prepping for months and I'll be like I got this shit locked like let's go I'm stoked and then like in rehearsals for a little bit play the first show everything's sick and then like throughout the tour I kind of lose sight of that yeah of like how how much work I did on the front end and like I deserve like I got hired for a reason you know like to, to whatever degree I deserve the position that I have and that kind of goes away and then it's just kind of the day-to-day of like I fucked this up I'm not playing this as well. You know, my hands were cold at sound check. And so I feel like I played like shit, you know, and, and like, not everybody's going to hear that because not everybody's on in-ears and hearing, you know, the, the, the little, like every minor fuck up, especially when you're using an ax effects, you know, like there's nothing covering it up. So, um, you know, I've had those moments where like, I have to like download a fucking, you know, quote unquote hypnosis app on my phone that I listen to when I go to sleep in the bus or in the hotel room or whatever. That's basically just like, that's just like, you're super confident. You're comfortable with who you are. Your friends don't hate you. You just need to go to sleep. You know? Like, and, um, like and, Oh my um, God. Yeah. And like that, that shit, that shit spirals really, really quickly and imposter syndrome creeps in really quickly and really strong and there's there's always kind of a recovery from that um so you know i i hope uh that whenever things come back to normal and and we start we start touring again and i'm able to you know kind of get back to what my life was that this time that i've spent sort of figuring out sort of who i am musically as stupid as i feel like that sounds and uh and the 
the time that you know, I put a lot of effort into into like practicing and improving on on things that I've previously really sucked at and trying to like make my technique better and all that kind of stuff. Like I'm just hoping it's all in an effort to feel better about the overall picture of what I am when I get back at it. So what I think is interesting though is that uh, I don't think you're alone in those kinds of feelings. No. I think lots of people get those types of feelings um hi <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's actually pretty common um i think it's good for people listening to hear it because i think a lot of people who aren't into their careers yet or who really want careers also have those feelings but they let those feelings stop them and so i think that the difference between people like the three of us and the people who don't do it isn't those feelings I think lots and lots of people get those feelings. It's just that we have found our own ways to deal with them. I do what I need to do to just keep moving forward, regardless of those feelings. I just kind of have accepted that my brain is a hostile environment. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a hot, it is straight up a hostile environment. I and, think uh, it's the worst. Do you think yeah, it's a curse? More, and it's more often hostile than, than not. And so... I've just figured out how to deal with it, what it is I need to ignore, what to tell myself, what behaviors to to engage in, to kind of just quell it. And even if I can't quell it, how to just ignore it. But point being that everything good that I've made happen, I've made happen with a totally broken brain that turns against me at any point possible with the worst imposter syndrome ever. And that's the same for most people I know, except for the psychopaths and the sociopaths. And there's a few <laughs> of them in music that we all know who, yep. who don't have any of these feelings and are very, very strange people, but they're not normal. Um, and I think most normal people in this who are not sociopathic or psychopathic deal with some degree of this all the time. And the thing that will set people apart, you know, besides being good at, music like assuming that you're good at music the thing that will set people apart is how much they can deal with the bullshit in their own mind i think yeah well and i think i think it also comes down to how strong how strong your belief in what your quote-unquote purpose is i don't even right? necessarily think it's that or how strong your belief in your goals is you know because even though you know i can spend an entire month out of a two-month tour questioning if i'm good enough or you know if i'm cut out for for this particular you know whatever i might question that stuff but i don't question what i want to be doing with my life you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, so like I've never, there's never been another option for me. I've never had a plan B. I told my parents I had a plan B. I went to college, but like, I didn't like, I went to fucking art school. It's fake. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> don't um, say that. My girlfriend's an artist. Well, I went, I went for audio engineering and I, you know, okay, oddly enough, I will give, I will <laughs> give uh, college the credit in that it's technically responsible for like the beginning of my career because I met Grant and Carson as their intern through for a college internship like i hit them up and was like hey i need an internship for for my audio program like can i can i come and intern with you guys and they were like sure and eventually that grew into a friendship and a partnership in galactic empire and that and you know and and that's ultimately what led to the the, the band that i'm in now and now you're talking to us right <laughs> yeah fucking made it dude yeah. um yeah so yeah, hey, uh, you can just quit now right, right. Co covid could not have come at a better time i've peaked i'm out <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like even even through all of the bullshit and, and the broken brain and, and questioning whether or not you're good enough at what you do or whether or not like 
whether or not these people, you know, see you as worthy or, you know, like worried that you're going to get fired or whatever it is, you know, like or whether or not your band's going to get signed, you know, whatever is plaguing you like the, the the important thing isn't whether or not you're having those feelings. It's whether or not it affects whether or not you want to do it. Yeah. Right. Do you know what I think it is as well? A little bit of is that, you know, people say, how did you do this? And I think that people, especially people that are really calculated, and we know quite a few of those, is that they think too much about what might happen in the future. Like they're, Mm -hmm. they're so concerned about things that ultimately are completely out of their control. Like, you know, they think, oh, I'm in this job, I earn good wages, but that job could just end tomorrow. And they haven't thought about that situation. And they think, oh, I'm comfortable there. I'm not going to change it. And I think that the people that think that way are never just going to throw everything in and want to do what their dreams are, which ultimately, you know, would be touring a band or, you know, making it from playing the guitar. And I think that that's part of the problem with these people is that they're thinking too much about what might happen in the future, the unknowing, but unless you know what, I think you can think about the future, but that you got to think about the future in the right way. Yeah. Um, And so I think a lot of people focus too much on what could go wrong instead of what will the world look like if this goes right. Right. Which is what I focus on. Like, I mean, obviously I want to know what contingencies should be if disaster happens and stuff. Of course. The way that we planned, Finn and I planned for a black swan economic event back in 2019 and the black swan came in 2020. And it's really good that we looked at what could happen economically, but still like what determines whether or not I move forward more often than not has to do with me asking myself, what will this look like if it works? Like what'll it be like? Um, And if the answer is awesome, then we move forward and figure it out. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes down to upbringing kind of, you know, Um, like I heard, I listened to your, uh, at least some of your podcasts with, uh, with Mark from nothing more yesterday. And you guys were talking about how, neither of you ever had a plan B you believe that that's like essential to to making it in a, in a world like this but if you had a kid you'd probably tell them to have a plan B because that's the smart thing and I think that most parents have that inclination I guess that will make me a bad parent when I tell my kids no just fucking go for it let me cut you off real quick I just had a really interesting conversation on this topic with a guy named Jeff Blue the podcast will come out soon he's the dude who signed Lincoln Park he's got like 140 million sales under his belt as like a A&R type dude, like super, super successful. Let's put it that way. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds nice. Yeah. One of those guys that just fucking won and won and keeps winning. And his job has been to find 19 year olds that he knows are going to be superstars. Right. And encourage them to like devote their life to this thing. Like his story with Lincoln Park is getting them to, put their whole life into this when they were still a local band and uh it's crazy so i asked him what if it was your kid like what if chester was your kid or something would you have told him to do that he's like i don't know and then <laughs> he thought about it and he was like wait a second if my kid was like me because me i was already investing in the stock market when i was 13 i was already trying to become a lawyer by the time i was 17 i was already doing all this crazy stuff 
if my kid was like me, I would encourage them to do the unrealistic thing. So I guess it depends on the kid. If the kid is a normal kid and they wanted to do something unrealistic, I would encourage them to do the realistic thing, you know, go to college and be a normal person. But if the kid is like, say it was a musician and is like extraordinarily talented and you can just tell that yeah. they're not going to do anything else with their life, but they're also awesome. Right. Then what are you doing? Not encouraging them. So I guess his, uh, his take on it was, yeah, and with most people, yeah, don't encourage them to do this shit. <laughs> I'll just speak, but I'll no, just but laugh know your at kid. The... Know your kid. If your kid really is a freak, then uh, yeah. you're a bad parent by not encouraging them. I'm, I'm laughing at like the hypothetical scenario of like, Dad, I'm going to be a rock star and just be like, hmm, let's start a community college, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> There's also the gray area, though, as well, AR, where, for example, like I, you, you've said before that your dad wasn't really into metal. No. So... He would have known you were talented, but at the same time, would you, if you were him, for example, would you push you to do being a metal band? Because technically he wouldn't have understood it. So do you know what I'm saying? It's like, even if you know your kid's really good at something, but you don't understand what it is, would you still encourage it? I don't know. I can't answer that. Yeah. My dad was a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, I think. He came from an artistic family like his dad was was a a painter and he was the first person i ever heard play a guitar just an acoustic guitar a couple of chords but when i was a kid it sounded really cool you know he never really did anything with with art or any kind of creativity or whatever but but he always wanted to be a doctor when he was younger and when he got into school he realized that he just fucking hated the program you know hated all the the chemistry and and whatever and he quit and he kicked himself for it for the rest of his life that he didn't just stick it out because he then he ended up you know in like in like medical sales jobs and all kinds of stuff and he just hated it and it you know kind of ruined his his mood for most of his life just because he was just at a job that he didn't enjoy and you know not working for a while and just feeling unfulfilled and and whatever so i could tell back then i couldn't now looking back it's obvious that he was torn between the, like, be the good, sensible parent who encourages a backup plan and, and encourages your, your kid to pursue a normal, quote-unquote, normal career so that they're not screwed, but also that he gave up on what he wanted to do, and so he's not going to tell his kid to do that, you know? And that was always that was always my biggest motivation, even when my dad struggled, like, had those points of struggle where he was kind of telling me like maybe it's time to to like look for something else and i was just like no you know because and, and he wasn't saying that because he thought i sucked or whatever like he he put he put a lot of money my parents put a lot of money um into you know i was in a school of rock program from when i was 10 years old from when i would be, you know i had i had a few lessons like maybe a couple months worth of of lessons at a local shop before the the branch near me opened up and i was the first kid to sign up there and i was there until i graduated high school you know so my parents were very very supportive of what i did and, and they bought me what they could when they could and you know like I, you know, I was fortunate i had a fairly privileged upbringing i was one of those kids that got nice christmas presents and other kids got mad at fuck um, you man but uh fuck right you. yeah <laughs> you know, but even though they would still say, like, you need to have a backup plan, maybe this isn't the most realistic, you know, what are the odds of this working out, blah, 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 they would give me those things. And at the time, I would feel like they were trying to make me quit. And I, you know, it was like the rebellious teenager phase of like, fuck you. And my, my thing was always like, what? So like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give up on what I want to do and be miserable. Like you told me you were like, why would <laughs> I do that? You know, uh, but like, looking back on it now, I feel like they were only saying that because they felt like they had to, you know, because if, if they really felt that way, they would have pulled me out of those programs. Yeah, you totally. know, they, would have, they were doing they, their due diligence and also 
saying things for the record, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Like, just, just so you know, you might crash yeah. and burn and we don't we don't want a 40 year old stay at home son. You know, I need to say something in my parents defense about them not being down with metal. Metal was a very different place in the 90s. Yeah, it was not music that like harmless dorks play like it is now. Right. I take offense to that, sir. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a huge dorky contingent in metal now where they're just musicians who are just good at like this extreme style of music, but the extremity doesn't, doesn't all necessarily translate into the rest of their lives, for instance. Whereas in the 90s... Thanks, Tosin. Yeah, which is, I think it's awesome. They can just be musicians. In the 90s, uh, there was a lot more of a criminal element in metal. A lot more violence, a lot more just scary stuff. And when I was 15, they would notice that the people from my band were from the schools with for kids with behavioral problems. And the stuff that they would do when they would come to my house for practice would involve vandalism. They would bring over some real fucked up people. Like they were friends with like real neo-Nazis, like the real kind, not this fake bullshit kind you see nowadays. Like Not the Tiki Torch. No, not the Tiki Torch, the real kind. And they took me to a few metal shows and they just saw what the crowd was back then. And I remember how violent those shows were. Those shows were fucking scary back then. And I remember when we'd go to band practice, it would always be in like the worst neighborhoods possible (laughs) if it wasn't at, at my place. And they were just worried about my safety and they didn't want me getting wrapped up with like criminal elements at the age of 15 or 16. So, and I, and since they didn't, they're not American. Metal wasn't really part of their upbringing. They come from the classical world. They were new to the U.S. Uh, this whole culture of rock and metal was completely foreign to them. So their only introduction to it was through the scumbags that they met through me and through <laughs> what they saw at a Morbid Angel show where like sharps and neo-nazis would go to battle and he hit each other with like pool balls and stuff in the face and like just all kinds of shit so i kind of understand why they weren't too encouraging of metal plus they didn't really see that there was an upside possible understandable right like they didn't they didn't understand what a band like metallica was or a band like Pantera or yeah things like that. They didn't they didn't realize that that was super successful and that there is that there is a successful path possible with this style of music. But they just saw, wow, my kid is involved with some really bad influences. And legitimately, they were really bad influences. If my kid was hanging out with the kinds of people that I was hanging out with as a teenager, I'd have a problem with it too. These people were fucked up and. Uh, a lot of them are dead now, dead from uh, not like not. It's all a tragedy, but they're not dead. They didn't get cancer is what you're saying. Yeah, there's not dead for a good reason. <laughs> yeah. which is this, how do I say this? It's not like it's all terrible. It's all a tragedy, but like dead from picking fights with people and getting killed. Dead from things like snorting cocaine, Xanax, drinking a bottle of whiskey. And then 
coke sniffing more coke crushing up zoloft ambien and uh and clonopin and sniffing that too like in the same day <laughs> like not not accidentally taking one too many sleeping pills like fucking scarface levels of drugs and uh yeah. violence and prison and you know that's they just didn't want me in that environment can you blame them no not at all right. no yeah See, I didn't grow up with that kind of metal. I didn't really grow up with that kind of metal either, but I was sort of on the tail end of it, I think, in terms of like how it was viewed culturally. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I know that, I mean, at one point, and you know, it was like at the time, my reaction's like, joke's on you. I'm not planning on going anyway. But at one point, my dad literally <laughs> threatened to not pay for my college if I was playing music with screaming in it. He was very just taken back by the music that I had gotten into. The earliest iteration of Illustrium was uh, was called Altered Image. That was the band's first name uh, back in you know, when we were like 16, 17. And the singer that we had at the time committed suicide. And the day that we all found out that it happened, we all went over to Mike's place and, you know, our parents, our parents brought us over there. And, you know, obviously like we're in one room, you know, crying and freaking out and whatever. And the parents are in the other room, basically having a conversation of like, what the fuck is going on? And obviously, you know, they're, they're scared. They don't know what's happening either. And all they're trying to do is find, find not something to blame, but just something that like, how do I make sure that my kid doesn't do this? You know what I mean? Like they don't want it to happen to them. And my dad had a conversation with me on the on the ride home where like he was he was like trying to dance around it and use like clever words, but essentially the parents were worried that the type of music that we were playing had something to do with it. Um and uh I mean I lost my I lost my shit on him and and was like how like how the fuck like how are you blaming me and blaming my music? for what for something that my depressed friend did you know like especially now like right now like i just found out today like can't we have this conversation and fight about this in a week you know again like looking back now they were just as scared as we were but we were just scared and sad that we weren't ever going to see our friend again you know they were scared in the fact that like these parents just lost their children and i don't want to lose mine and they didn't understand the type of music that we were playing they didn't understand you know, that like you can have kind of intense, dark lyrical content and not be mentally ill, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, so I didn't, I didn't grow up in, you know, when metal was like this violent sort of criminal thing, but I did, I did sort of grow up, like I said, on the tail end of that, where there was still sort of a stigma about it. Whereas now I feel like, I feel like most parents, like if the, you know, if you're, if you have like a 14 year old kid and he's like, I'm playing heavy metal and you're like, what? Like, eh, let me look into this. And you type in like heavy metal, like, or like new heavy metal bands or something like that. And you'll see like a picture of Tosin Abasi and you're like, this guy looks like he has his shit together. I guess this is okay. <laughs> yeah, that's that's <laughs> like, exactly my point. He's fucking jacked. He's got glasses on his girlfriend's hot. He's standing next to a Ferrari. What the fuck do <laughs> I have to worry about? You know, it's like, <laughs> it sounds like this kid's going to be on the cover of Forbes, I guess. So it's just, yeah, like you said, it's just a different world than it was but again you know it just goes back to like the confidence in, in what you were doing is you know my my parents were my dad was threatening not to send me to college even though he didn't want to go and, and but i was you know i grew up in a in a, in a in a world where you had to do that you know that was like everyone in the family went to college that's just what you did so you know you feel like you're risking alienating your family or being you know kicked out of the house or whatever which they never would have done but you know just you're, you're worried about things like that and but it's just none of that stuff affected the fact that i still wanted to do it and 
I think, you know, not everybody has that. There's people who are like, oh, I really like the music and I want to play it. And then their parents give them some resistance or, you know, like you said, they have a job that they're, that's relatively well paying and they have health insurance and they're like, oh, well, like if I, if I go on tour, then I lose that. And then what if touring doesn't work out, you know, then, then I don't have that anymore. And I understand that that could be a scary thought. But my thing, when people ask me about that, is I'm like, are you single? Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you own a home? Like, if the answer to any of those is no, let alone all of those, if the answer to all of those is no, then you have like, you have literally no reason to do it because unless, unless you don't want to, (laughs) unless you don't want to, right. Or unless like, I can understand it more. It computes with me a little bit more. If you're like, I just got out of law school. I just passed the bar. I've spent the last 10 years of my life studying for this to like be a lawyer, but I think I want to be a musician. And it's really scary because like I could go make six figures right now, but that will always be there. As well, right. That's my point, and that, that's the that's the other thing. So if you if you have if you're trained in a profession, whether it's a lawyer or you're a welder, like a skilled worker, you know, where you're trained in something that is always going to be in demand. That's something where you, like you should be able to have the confidence. And again, I it, like it's easy for me, somebody who's not skilled in any of those ways, to be like you, you got nothing to worry about. But like if you have training in something and you have like a certification or a degree or whatever, like something that says like you put all this impressive work in to make sure that like you are fucking good at this, then it's going to be easier for you to find a job in most cases. Right. But like, if you're just worried, like you're, you know, you're like, I work at Shoprite and I don't even know if that exists anymore, but like, (laughs) you're like, you know, like I'm a, I'm a manager at a grocery store and I'm not shitting on grocery store managers. Like, Everyone's got to have a job, you know, it's honest work. But like, if you're like, I'm a manager at a grocery store and I have a decent healthcare plan. So like, if I go on tour that like that, then that goes away. It's like, dude, fucking go on tour, go on tour. Like if you've got experience working in a store, especially management experiences or whatever, like you might not have that job when you get back, but you can go to another place. That's just like that. Like I worked in food service. I've worked in retail, whatever. Like if you've got experience working in any of those places, they all have such high turnover rates that like you can get in there again. Yeah. You know what I mean? That same place might take you back because they also have high turnover rates. The guy they hire after you might be a fucking drug addict or something. And by the time (laughs) you're back, they're like, please, we need you, you know? So like just fucking take, (laughs) just fucking take that leap yeah you know what i mean because because if you don't it like <laughs> that that fucking cliche of like 100 percent of the shots you don't take you know what i mean like if you're gonna be sent like worst case scenario you go out you do it you fail just come back at least you know at least you know yeah exactly you know and also just think about the the skill sets that you learn while you're actually in a band as well the are transferable to other jobs. Like, for example, I learned to video edit, video grade, because I was in a band. And then eventually, obviously, right. went through to Riff Hard, which it helped a lot for. Same with Photoshop, you know, Adobe Photoshop. I learned all of that because of being in a band. Certain management skills because I was in a band. Right. Not all job applicants or whatever, or like not all people taking applications will understand how those things are transferable. So it can be difficult, but you're right. You do learn a lot of things and under a lot of stress too. Like there's a, you you can get management experience from working in a grocery store where everything's on a schedule and you have staff. And if somebody doesn't show up, then you just call somebody else in and whatever. And I'm not saying it's not stressful and it doesn't have its own problems, but if you're in fucking Germany and there's five members of your band and one guy just isn't fucking there, it's not just nobody's here to do the job it's not just we might not get the money from the show it's 
somebody from our camp is just somewhere in Germany. You know? like, we don't fucking know. like. There's a lot that you have to figure out in a very short period of time. I did all the tour managing, or nearly all the tour managing with Galactic Empire, um, and like I, I'm, I'm willing to bet I took years off my life. I mean, if you if you had asked my wife if I was a Type A or Type B personality, she'd be like, "He's a Type B. He's fucking. He's like inherently lazy and just go with the flow and whatever." Like I'm always the one that's worried about shit. I'm handling the finances, whatever. You know that like she would have laughed if somebody called me Type A, right? But we were in Japan at one point and we're trying to figure out how to get around just on an off day. We're trying to figure out how to travel and everyone's, fr- and everyone's freaked out because they can't read the signs. And my front of house just looks at me and goes, all right, Chris, turn on that type a because he had seen, because he had seen me. He had seen what I did on like the last Euro tour where we got there and the fucking bus company, which I, I'm not afraid to call them out. Fuck you. Absolute touring. Oh yeah. Uh, doesn't send, doesn't send the trailer with the bus. And we've got like a hundred cases worth of gear that we now have to load into the lounge and the driver's like no there was no trailer you know and like yeah there was a fucking trailer it's on the invoice you know like i have it and then like i'm you know i'm in the parking lot at download fucking screaming at the people on the phone of like no 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 i'm not driving to germany you're driving the fucking trailer to paris that's what you're doing you know like and he like they had seen me do things like that and scream at people over the phone and deal with angry stage managers when we showed up late Real quick, just another jab at Absolute Touring. We we showed up to to Grass Pop. We were the first band on the on the stage that we were playing, which to this day one of the best shows I've ever done. It was amazing. But fun festival. We got there late. It wasn't that. It wasn't like super late, but we got there late. And at a thing like that, like you got to go, 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 right? And the stage manager was pissed. I you know I walk in and he's like, "Which band are you?" And I'm like, "Galactic Empire." And he's like, "Where the fuck have you been?" And I was like, "Dude, our driver, like I don't know what the fuck is going on." And and usually I feel like in most cases that would be like like someone's just trying to cop out right like oh yeah sure it was your Cat fucking driver like you know take, right yeah exactly but i was like dude i don't know what the fuck is up with our driver i don't know what route he took to get here but like all of our gpss were telling this that it was going to take way less time than it took i don't know what's happening i'm really sorry and he goes wait what company are you driving with i'm like absolute he's like say no more get your shit in here let's go um <laughs> <laughs> like, just instantly forgiven you know i'm surprised that your bus didn't set on fire to be honest yeah right <laughs> i'm also very surprised that our bus didn't catch fire fire <laughs> have they caught fire yeah absolute touring was uh the company that owned the bus that was driving during the dillinger crash yep i will say for the record that i don't know if it was the buses or the driver's fault all i'm saying is that that there is at least that coincidence there peripheries tour bus caught fire they're the most affordable european bus company which is why they get a lot of business um but it it shows basically Two prime examples. At that same year at Grass Pop, we played our show. Everything went great. We're all walking around watching the bands that, that we want, whatever. Uh, everyone kind of coming in and out of the bus. I hear this story from uh, from our stage tech. He comes comes out of the you know the back into the parking lot, you know, out from behind the main stage. He finds our bus, puts in the door code, gets on the bus. And he's looking around. He can't find his bag. And then he starts noticing there's a lot of bags that he doesn't recognize. And then people come out, and he's like you're not my band. And he's like, I'm really sorry. I must have stepped onto the wrong bus. And they're like, oh, no worries. Like, it's fine. And he goes, all right, see you later. And he starts walking off and he goes, wait a second. And he turns around. He looks at the driver. He goes, does every absolute tour bus have the same door code? And the guy goes, yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, the same fucking door code for every bus. <laughs> like, so, like, so I hope I didn't just, uh, like, give people details of how to steal people's shit. I certainly hope no one does that. Yeah, at least at the time, every single bus on their fleet had the exact same door code. And that was the second year that we used. And the first year, they sent us, so the tour started out hellish. So we flew into Madrid, played, you know, unloaded, played a show in Madrid, loaded back up, flew to London, I think. Yeah, flew to Heathrow. So like starts out with a with a one-off fly date. Super weird. Uh, you know, so double exhausting already. We land in London and I'm like, all right, I gotta I gotta like do some navigation, whatever. Roger, that's our front of house. I'm like, Roger, here's here's the number for the bus driver. Can you call him and figure out where he is? And so I hear him on the phone and he's he's, you know, oh so are you you're by the you're by the train station? The parking garage? Like it's very, very clear that he's having a hard time like talking with this person. And he finally gets off the phone and I'm like, all right, so where are we going? He's like, I'm not entirely sure. He's very German. Uh, They had sent us a bus driver that did not speak any English. He exclusively spoke German. And we were going to be in Europe for two and a half weeks with only this guy. (laughs) So we pull up to like, and you can imagine what that spells for the rest of the tour of being able to, to like literally not communicate with your bus driver. Fucking. So the guy's name was Bernhardt. I called him Raul at one point for some reason and it stuck. So his name was Raul for the rest of the tour. So the first day we get, yeah, we get to, we get to London and, uh, and they're like, Chris, can you go find out what time bus call is? And I'm like, how the fuck am I supposed to figure out what time bus call is? We can't talk to the guy. And that's when I was like, all right, I'll go talk to fucking Raul out here. Cause I couldn't remember his name. I don't know why I said Raul. So I, I went up and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing charades, you know, like, what time do we leave? You know, and he's like, he, he's, mm, you know, and he pulls up this card that has some letters and numbers on it and he points to something and I'm like, okay, so three and, mm, and he points to something else and I'm like, okay, two. And he, he goes, mm, like, holds up, you know, one second and pulls out his phone, types some stuff in, nods his head and then turns it back and it says, not before earlier. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I go I go back to the band I'm like as soon as the show's over everyone fucking get on the bus I have no idea what's happening that night we had to take the the ferry over to Paris which everyone dreads because you're always getting on it in the middle of the night and you always have to get off the fucking bus and everyone's exhausted right yes so we're all sleeping and we get to the border patrol part like before you actually get to the dock or the, to the port or whatever and all of a sudden bunk alley the door just swings and slams open and he's just in passport passport oh, <laughs> like waking everybody up and we're like ah, what oh he also shit on the bus by the way just a, just a quick a quick thing the driver shit on the bus fuck that guy anyway so, <laughs> so he's com- he's coming through you know and so then we all have to get out of bed and get out and give the border agents our passports and whatever and then, and then we come back on and uh and we're all sitting there we're exhausted we're trying to figure out like how how do we try to communicate with this guy to like maybe let us stay on the bus like tell like maybe we can use Google Translate and ask him to, to, to not tell people that there's anybody on the bus or something like that, you know, like, do, do something illegal. Um, and uh, and I'm like, you know, and that, that was my suggestion. I was like, maybe we can ask, uh, I was like, maybe we can ask Raul if, uh, if he can just not tell the people that there's anybody on the bus. And Carson's in the back, he's fucking furious. He's like, we should tell Raul to dive into the fucking sea, you know? Wow. So I'm like, so we, we eventually just realize there's nothing, there's nothing we can do. So, but we're just going to try to pretend that we don't wake up. <laughs> so, so Bunk Alley opens up and, you know, he's like, you know, ever, you know, you know or, I don't know, remember what he says, but he turns on the lights and it's clearly time to get off. And I'm like, you know, I don't have the energy to fight this. So I get off and I start walking. I get out of my bunk and I start walking off the bus and 
I look back and I notice that he's walking through Bunk Alley holding his phone out in front of him. And I'm like, he's not using the flashlight. The lights are on. Like, what the fuck is going on here? And so I peek back into the bus. And what he's doing, he has Google Translate open on his app. They're open on his phone. And he's sticking his hand into people's bunks and hitting a button. And just you just hear Siri go, please get out. And he's doing that to every single person <laughs> in the band. Just please get out. Please get out. Please get out. And <laughs> everyone's losing their fucking minds, like furious. Oh, man, it was awful. It was awful, but yeah. So those are my those are my two biggest stories with absolute touring: forgetting a trailer and forgetting a guy who speaks English. <laughs> those are the two biggest problems. I've been in a bus crash in an absolute tour bus. A crash? Yeah. Driver fell asleep at the wheel. Jesus! Oh my god! Yeah, and that was on the Suicide Silence tour with After the Burial and uh, Bleed from Within in 2011. The entire front of the bus was cracked. There's a lot of death-related names on that tour to have experienced almost death. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. (laughs) And, man, I don't know. One of the reasons I wanted to stop touring, actually, was because of the danger element. Like, I just kept thinking to myself, I just couldn't get it out of my head that the more I do this, the more likely I am to get into a bad accident. Because we already um, skirted that twice, we had one where we spun off the highway in a blizzard in with the trailer in like we jackknifed and then started spinning and then ended up oh. kind of in a ditch, like two feet away from oncoming tractor trailers. It could have been really, really bad. It just wasn't by two feet. That was in uh, Iowa, I believe. And um, that was scary, but nothing happened. But it could have easily happened. And then this other one where I was thrown out of my bunk on a bus because the driver was shaking, was swerving violently saying, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. And uh, I was the only one who woke up because I was thrown out of my bunk. And I went up to see what the hell was going on. Why was this dude screaming? And he was backing down a mountain on a two-lane road because <laughs> he ran out of gas going up the mountain in Switzerland. So, oh my God. yeah, dude, so... <laughs> A two-lane road on a mountain in Switzerland, runs out of gas, and so he's going to back it down the mountain. That's what was happening. So that's why he was yelling, oh, fuck. And oh, my God. that's when I got knocked out of the out of the bunk. And it took about an hour of going in reverse. Which which which, bu- which bunk were you? Are you top, middle, and bottom? I was bottom? on a bottom bunk. Okay, all right. Thank God. Yeah. I just woke up on the floor, and I was like, and I hear this guy screaming. Everybody else was totally passed out, which is good. Dude, we, uh, this not, not anywhere near as bad, but just cold, cold conditions being thrown from the bunk just made me, made me think of this. This was not absolute touring. I don't remember what company this was, uh, but this was in a, we did a U.S. tour. And at one point, so we, we did a show in Philly and the bus sat pretty much overnight. And then we had to drive to Massachusetts uh, the next day to play at the Palladium. The brake lines, or not the brake lines, the shock lines froze in the bus so we all we all go to sleep when the bus isn't running and then we are all awoken violently as the bus hits any amount of like uneven pavement which uh, anyone who lives in the northeast knows that road work is a constant and potholes in the winter are fucking everywhere roads are basically swiss cheese out here so driving from philadelphia to boston or, or worcester or whatever um not a fun time with no shocks on the bus. So literally every time the bus hits a bump, we're like, like I'm being thrown and my face is hitting the ceiling <laughs> above me in the bunk. And there were people that slept through it. I don't know how they, and, and, uh, 
and we had to stop at a we had to stop at like a, a a prevost you know service station or whatever and they had to like wash it so that they could clear the lines and melt everything or thaw everything and then they found other problems with the bus and whatever and it was eating into our to our time to get to massachusetts and i gotta give this this story has a positive ending i gotta give a huge shout out to whoever was working at the palladium for the galactic empire and max sabbath show a couple of years ago because they we got that tour so they let they let all the people in even though none of the tour package had got there yet. They let all the audience in, and then they just shut the doors behind them and were like, everyone hang out here for a while. And it was like three hours that the people were, were, were in there. And we got the entire tour all loaded in, set up, like local bands loaded on in front, faders up, no sound check, ready to go in like 15 minutes because we got there like an hour after doors. It's amazing what you can do when you have to, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was super fucking impressive. So let's talk a little bit about what you've been doing guitar playing wise, because you told me the other day you had been working on rhythm really hard, actually. Yeah, for Illustrium. Yeah. Tell, tell me about what goes into that. And first of all, why are you working on rhythm? So every subsequent Illustrium record ends up having the hardest material to date. And as I said earlier, I don't often learn the riffs as I'm recording them. You know, Mike's a little bit better about it than I am. We at least make sure that they are possible to play, you know, like no like crazy big jumps across the fretboard or anything like we make sure that they're realistic to play, but that we might not necessarily be able to play them at the time. And then we have to learn them later throughout this whole quarantine thing because I've been doing a lot of my solo stuff, which is not metal and has a large lead guitar component. I haven't really been keeping up my chops on like any metal or, or rhythm stuff at all. And uh, our rollout is coming up. So Illustrium has is going to be announcing with uh, Unique Leader and that's who's putting out the new record. And so this is the first sort of label rollout that we've had um, where somebody's, you know, obviously handling the marketing and the PR and everything like that. So, um, and admittedly kind of snuck up on us because we've been so used to like nothing happening for the last however many years, you know, with me touring and everyone else kind of having their jobs. And, you know, Mike was in Galactic Empire for a while, so he was touring too. Um, so we just got used to like, just, you know, we'd make a record and then not really do anything. So we all of a sudden realized like... <laughs> I don't know when it was, it was less than a month ago. I think when I texted you of like, I have to get way better at rhythm guitar in 10 days uh, because we were having rehearsal and we were trying out a new drummer and all that stuff. And, and I was having to learn the hardest songs on the record because fucking idiots. We are, we picked the three hardest songs on the album to be the singles <laughs> to promote the record. And we have to shoot music videos and do all this stuff, which I, yeah, and do playthroughs and whatever. So, uh, so that's why I've been having to, to up my, uh, to up my rhythm game is to just be able to play those riffs. And, and for the longest time, I mean, my, my technique has been just, Lead, wrong lead centric oh wrong that's well, what you told me wrong yeah i mean well so so lead centric for a while because i mean i was in galactic empire for a number of years where i literally played no rhythm i was literally just always doing the single note melody stuff the big gig that i have now there is rhythm stuff but it's not like and it, and it does get complicated at points but the hardest parts by far are the lead parts when they come in and there, there are some songs that are much easier than others so th i have more breaks in the set and things like that and i'm able to, to to get by with with the technique that i've had thus far but when it comes to playing you know progressive or technical death metal stuff like there's there's no substitute for like playing properly and i mean for the longest time i don't know if you can see like how i'm holding this but for the longest time i would kind of hold the pick like this where like my how can i describe that the two the two pads of my 
my thumb and my forefinger are together uh, or like touching the pick it's not like on the side of my forefinger mm-hmm. like it's like it's supposed to be and the other thing is that these two fingers my, my thumb and my forefinger move while I play it's not just the thing because there are guys who it's just those two fingers that move when they play but like my wrist is going my fingers are going when I when I speed up it's all it goes all elbow you know um, and so the last uh, like three weeks has basically just been drilling uh, these songs and these super technical difficult riffs and you know starting really slow and just you know starting like 50 bpm slower uh every day and just working my way up to to full tempo and whatever and just trying to keep everything relaxed and you know identify where there's tension and if there's tension that i can't you know keep keep away at all times like i have to figure out where in the riff there's a break where i can release that tension and things like that so and i've never paid attention to that stuff before because frankly i didn't even know that that was a thing obviously like i could feel when i was tensing up but i had never heard like straight up never heard until the last like year of anyone be like oh you gotta you just gotta focus on where the tension is and figure out how you gotta keep yourself relaxed and whatever like at nowhere in any of my like formal lessons guitar training anywhere even when i was like after i stopped taking lessons and i was learning stuff on youtube videos or whatever nowhere was anyone like i think i saw like one guthrie govan video of of him doing this like crazy like 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 these sort of like like funky chords with the with the muted stuff in between where he was like you got to keep your wrist relaxed i'm like well i'm never gonna do that so fuck it you know like no one had ever talked to me and i had never like looked into anything about like i knew i had one guitar teacher tell me that like your fit your two fingers are moving that's not right but that was when i was like 14 and i'm an inherently lazy person and i'm like well i can still play the songs so I don't care, but I've gotten to a point now where there are things that I'm having to learn to play, whether it's as a hired gun or for my own band or whatever, or even for my solo stuff in certain cases where I'm just not able to get away with it anymore. So what are you doing? It's really just metronome work and just making sure that my technique is consistent. Like I'm holding the pick the same way every time. If I'm tucking my fingers up, I'm doing that every time. Um, Cause that's another thing. Like I often just kind of, what kind of exercises it's, it's just playing the parts, playing the parts slow. Okay. That's been my whole, you know, practice regiment forever. And that's why like, I have like very little functional theoretical knowledge because I grew up in the school of rock program and, and just learning songs. So you're taking what you have to play and then using that as your exercise. Right. Yeah. That's, that's just what, that's what I've always done. I just, I learned what I have to learn and I, I make sure I play. Were you being serious when you said you were looking at the riff hard stuff? Yeah. 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 Because I just wanted to, I wanted to see what kind of exercises were on there, you know, in like the down picking gym and things like that. And I wanted to kind of see like how Brown's right hand was working uh, in a a close up environment. And and, um, because I it's been so long since I've worked on anything like that. And when I did work on it, it wasn't to the to the degree of detail that I'm trying to do it now. Did it help? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was it was more. You know, because it's been such a short period of time, I haven't had a lot of time to dive into to, to a lot of the Ray Fard stuff. But just what sort of reassured or reaffirmed what I had already been doing was that a lot of the down pick gym and a lot of like the riff based stuff is play like playing riffs from monument songs or other bands songs or down picking patterns or whatever and things like that. And so I'm like, so this basically trans translates to learning how to play a riff properly. Yeah. Yep. And so I was like, okay, well, I can I can apply that 
philosophy here because that's what I've always done. It's just that this time there has to be a technique component as well as making sure that I'm playing the right notes. One thing to bear in mind, actually, obviously with your pick as well, never see anything as particularly wrong other than obviously finger movements is not good. But the way you hold the pick is... I think it's so individual for each of us that I don't really consider they're right or wrong unless you are causing strain in your technique. Like, you know, right. if you take a look at John Petrucci, he holds his pick in a completely different way than I do. Mm-hmm. And there is obviously an element of getting used to what you know, but I think that as long as you're not causing any strain to any of your muscles that you don't need to extra, then I don't consider that wrong. Right. Well, and that, and that's the thing. I mean, especially with... Uh, higher speeds. Yeah. There's certain ways you have to hold it for high speed. Yeah. I still, uh, I still have trouble. I mean, I, I don't have good wrist mobility at all. I mean, Al, I was talking to you about this the other day. I mean, my, if I don't have a string or a guitar in front of me, I can move my wrist, you know, up to a, up to a certain point, no problem. Like, you know, because there's no resistance there. But for some reason, when I have a guitar in front of me, that ability to just do this for, ever goes away he's air air picking for those of you listening i haven't figured out why that is i haven't figured out if it's just a mental block or if it's just something about but like you know if i you know just kind of pretend that there's a guitar on my midsection and move my wrist the way that i should move when i'm picking a string like no problems no tension nothing but as soon as there's something there it's all fucked up um and it's been that way forever when you're practicing do you practice sat down or stood up uh, it depends. Okay. I will, I will usually learn things sitting down, but, uh, when I like, when it's time to like really drill them, which is usually for the purpose of playing live, I'll practice standing up. Good. That's a good answer. Yeah. Well, cause I, I mean, I used to do what everybody does where you just learn everything and get good at playing it sitting down and then suck on stage. Yeah. And it's, and especially, especially when I was heavier, uh, you know, when your gut sticks out a lot farther, your guitar does not sit the same way on your gut as it does on your lap. It doesn't anyway. Like, yeah, it's always going to be completely different. Yeah. Man, having a huge gut and playing guitar don't aren't very uh, compatible. Simpatico. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Brown, you don't have a huge gut. Not the way that Chris had or that I had. There's yeah, something else yeah, that's no. huge down there, though. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I also don't have that, so yeah, I can't relate. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm Irish, adequate at best. Uh, but yeah, so um, yeah, I've always had an issue with wrist mobility. And um, like I'm getting a little bit better at it now, but not in not in the way of like like having control. My control is getting better when I work up slowly, but that like I can tell it's going to take a really long time for me to have a chance at my wrist being like my dominant muscle group when I'm playing fast. But the one thing that has sort of helped is if my arm is kind of taking over to make sure that my wrist isn't also tight. Yeah, just don't like you. If you think about it, this is the best way to think about it. Think about the muscle groups that are in your arm. In your wrist, it's amongst the smallest in the entire framework of your arm. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to be doing any power, you want to try and get it from the shoulder because it's the biggest set of muscles in your arm. And that way there's going to be less chance of actual injury because that muscle can right. take it. Whereas if you're moving your wrist like this, eventually it will start cracking and you'll start hearing um, weirdisms in it. And you don't want that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where, that's where I'm trying to kind of find the balance with it. Because obviously if your wrist is the more dominant muscle group, especially with 
uh, higher speeds, you, your accuracy improves. Obviously, yeah. But I I just have a problem getting it there. Um, so, but like I said, I'm right now. Right now, my focus, at least with learning the illustrium stuff, is is making sure that my picking feels stable. That's another thing. Like when I would play like really fast stuff, I would kind of be worried that the pick was going to fly out of my hands. And so I'm making sure that I don't feel that way. And I'm making sure that, you know, when I am going faster, like there, there will have to be times like where I'm, you know, where I'm making sure that my wrist is, is, is the dominant group. And then when that gets too tired and I kind of have to go back to the finger thing, like I kind of pick my spots of where that's going to be and try to sort of choose, choose it wisely of what's, of, of what's needed and how to kind of relax different muscle groups until I can get, until I can strengthen my wrist more. Um, but the biggest focus is to just figure out like if there's a part that's all 16th notes and then there's an eighth note, like when I hit that eighth note to just kind of like let all the tension in my body go away as much as humanly possible. Um, <clears throat> so that, it's uh and that that was another thing that i never knew was a thing of like just of like releasing tension mid riff you know um like my whole thing was like just fucking go until it stops you know <laughs> like um and uh and it always hurt you know and uh so that's that's the biggest thing is working through the tension and figuring out your kind of uh i listened to your episode with wes and he 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 kind of described it as like meditating through it almost and kind of trying to find a way to do that you know kind of shut your eyes and figure out kind of what hurts or what's straining and relax it and see if you can still play you know um and uh and go from there so i i'm i'm effectively technique wise i'm effectively starting from scratch but i'm having to i'm having to do it while still being required to play things you know so like i can't 100 percent build up like just from ground from from zero you know so like I'm, I'm having to sort of phase it in and hopefully take over the the poor technique but it's definitely getting better you know obviously day to day it's difficult to notice progress but you know looking at you know looking back even you know a few months versus now or a year or more uh to to now um you know i, I can definitely notice improvements and things that i'm that i'm more comfortable doing uh than i was before and uh even with with fast things like sometimes i find that even though like if i'm having trouble you know if something's at like 200 bpm or something if i'm still having trouble getting to 200 you know i've been working on it for a week or something and 200 still kind of seems out of my out of my range i will notice that i'll be able to start faster you know like i'll have had to start at 90 whereas now i only have to start at 140 or something like that so like i'm still taking that as progress as well because i don't have to start that is total progress yeah so and that that's been something that i've had to sort of train myself to notice you know because i feel like a lot of people it may it makes sense if the, if the riff is played at 200 bpm and you're not getting to 200 bpm you feel like you're failing at it but not having to start as far back you know when you're practicing it that you you get faster in a shorter period of time that that very much is is a progression and an improvement so um just trying to keep i'm being my own teacher right now um i've been meaning to you know, there's a couple of guys like I took a lesson with uh, with Temu from from Winter Sun uh, sometime last year, which was really helpful on, on like some like sweeping stuff. But that was I was practicing things for my my hired gun gig. So it wasn't rhythm based, um, but it did help, you know, when I practiced that stuff of kind of being conscious of when to tilt my hand and how to move my arm and whatever. Um, and I've been meaning to, you know, take lessons from dudes like Wes and stuff. I had planned on like just like 
picking out a couple guys to just like go, you know, a month with this guy, a month with this guy, a month with this guy, whatever, just to like try to wide, you know, broaden my, my understanding of how things work. Um, and of course, you know, COVID doesn't do well financially. So <laughs> that hasn't, uh, that hasn't, uh, manifested yet. Um, but in the meantime, I'm just trying to do the best job of being my own teacher and, 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 look up as many resources as I can, as many YouTube videos on the subject as I can. Um, cause it's, it's confusing. I think like going, you know, as somebody who never focused on tension before, uh, you know, I know that I'm not the only person that's, that's dealing with that, whether it's at an, you know, intermediate advanced beginner, it doesn't really matter if, if you're not familiar with it, it's totally new. So, uh, it's difficult sometimes hearing people describe it. Like, like for instance, like saying like, oh, you want your wrist to be what's moving, but the power comes for your shoulder. <laughs> you're like, like if, if you've never, if you've never worked at that, you're like, what the fuck does that mean? Like that, that should mean that my wrist isn't what's mo right. Like, so it's, uh, it's difficult to, to sort of figure out how to decipher that and sort of find the people who explain it best. Um, and when you find the people who explain it best, then you watch them play and kind of watch what's happening. And one thing that I did notice was like, even somebody like Jason Richardson, who's obviously like technique is fucking flawless, at least visually the strength coming from that dude's forearm when he plays fast is pretty significant. Yep. His wrist is still, his wrist is still what's moving. He's still super accurate, but his, his forearm isn't static. Like his, his shit's moving. So like, that was another thing when I was younger, when my teacher was like, hey, your two fingers are moving. It should only be your wrist. But then I would try to do something faster and, you know, not be patient enough to use a metronome. And I'd be like, well, how is that? How is that possible? Because my wrist stops moving at that point. So, like, there must be something wrong with my wrist and I must have to compensate elsewhere, basically. So figuring out how to take in the right information and use it properly has been a big thing. But, yeah, it's just uh, like I said, I'm just kind of rebuilding my technique at this point. You know, watching how the people who can actually do these things do it, nothing beats that. And I, I realize that you don't have to be a great player to be a great teacher, but there's certain things that are so specialized, like these ultra technique things that we're talking about that are yeah. outside the bounds of normal guitar playing. You really kind of need to see it from someone who can do it, I think. Mm -hmm. And someone who does it successfully. Right. I don't mean successfully as in sells records. I mean, successfully as in pulls it the fuck off. Proper execution. Yeah. And it can be difficult even with that. It can, you know, because obviously I've been watching guitar players my whole life, you know, when I found out who, who Ingve was and Eric Johnson and, and like all these dudes who can just fucking shred. Like I didn't, I didn't notice that Eric Johnson was hybrid picking in Cliffs of Dover when I was young. You know, I just thought he was picking fast and I was like, I can't pick that fast. So I guess I can't play Cliffs of Dover, you know? Um, so, uh, it can be difficult when you're watching, like if you don't know what to look for, yep. yes, for sure. You just, you just, you just think like, Oh, that guy just spent years with a metronome, which he did more than likely. I actually have an example of this with our drummer. He didn't know what a trigger was. So that's why his kick drums are some of the most consistent I've ever heard. Yeah. And that's, and you know what? Like, I'm so like resentful of people like that. <laughs> Another example of, of a drummer like that is, as we all know, is Alex Rudinger. Yep. And, and I know, and, and A, all I've heard both on URM and Riff Hard and all you guys lately, like, I've heard 
I've heard multiple conversations about this, uh, about how there's the, there's this, I mean, obviously, you know, talent and, and whatever, like these guys are just freaks and, you know, they spend 12 hours a day and not everybody does that and whatever that's a given, but there's this generation of kids who's like just after me, like I'm talking like a couple years after me who grew up on like necrophagist and shit yep. where they didn't know like and obviously necrophagist is 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 not an example of people quantizing or cutting shit together but there are bands who've done that and so they don't know that kick drums can be triggered or snares can be replaced or things are edited or that like guitars can be played at half speed and then cut into place um and they don't know what that sounds like they just hear it and they're like this is the most this is like the, the the greatest example of perfection that I've ever heard. And so that's their, that's their, their marker. That's, that's what North they Star. use. Yeah, exactly. And so that they're just like, I, I'm not good unless I can do that. That's what it, that's what it takes. I was on that tail end of like, you know, early two thousands, everything's still pretty raw, you know, production's getting better. But like, I remember when like fall of ideals came out that all that remains record when Adam D was like replacing stuff. And that was like a totally new thing at the time. And like that blew my fucking mind of how tight that was. But I was nearly in high school when that came out, I had already been playing for a good while. So, uh, you know, and in school of rock and whatever, it's all, you know, classic rock and, and older metal and stuff like that. And, you know, you know, Metallica and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and even with Metallica, like obviously fucking master puppets and that kind of stuff is really difficult to play. Um, difficult. It's impossible. Like our, te- our teachers would just, our teacher. Yeah. Right. It's, <laughs> you know, I heard you mention on, on that episode with, uh, with Pat Sheridan where you're like the only thing Petrucci ever did wrong was alternate pick master of puppets. And it's that way of thinking, that's why I don't play master of puppets because because I can't. Um, but, uh, but like our teachers would just be like, yeah, they downpick everything. And that was it, you know? And I'm not, I'm not like shitting on our teachers, you know, because they, they were, they were individual teachers and they had to direct shows and whatever. So like, like they had a lot going on and, and like, uh, you know, analyzing the minutia of a, of a 13 year olds playing, you know, like might not have felt worth it at the time. Um, you know, uh, unless you unless you thought that they were a fucking prodigy or something, but like they would just be like, yeah, he downpicks everything, so try, and you'd be like, oh, okay, <laughs> like, and that was it. But like you didn't, you, you, I never learned how to like do that, relaxed or anything like that. There have been times where I've been better and worse at it or whatever. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I grew up. I feel like on like obviously I like listening to a lot of older stuff, and uh, and I didn't discover that ultra precise super technical like crazy shit at a at a really young age i discovered it like high school college end of things where i had already had all these bad habits just like ingrained in my playing um and and because i was older at that point that stuff felt so it felt that much more out of reach because even though i was was more advanced talk about this i think doc coyle talked about when he started doing bad wolves. It was like learning a whole new language of music, like Mm -hmm. how to play like that. The, that rhythm style was just totally foreign to him because he's from a different generation. Yeah. I mean, there is one downside to all that 
pristine production quality is well actually there's two ways a guitar player or any other instrumentalist can go one way is that they never really fully understand what's happened in the production element and go completely out of their way and become absolutely amazing at their instrument and then the people that work out what actually happens they eventually just don't even practice the instrument anymore and then just edit it yeah and that was that was me to a degree. Uh, like I would still I would, I would still have to learn the stuff to play it live for Illustrium, but I was never I was never as perfect live as I as I sounded on the record, you know, because at the time I was I had been interning with with Grant and Carson, and and most of the time, like I I was lucky enough to be out there for like ABR sessions and stuff like that. But most of their clients at the time were were local bands in Lancaster, and so a lot of those kids couldn't play, yeah. and so I would see how they would how they would piece the riffs together and kind of edit things and quantize and whatever. And I just thought that's the way it's done. That's the, that's the way you make things sound good. Um, and so that, that was a, a pitfall for me for a few years as well. Um, because I would just write shit like, you know, the new illustrium record has a lot of really difficult shit on it. And I would consider it to be the hardest that we've done so far, but everything is attainable on that record there's stuff on a tunnel to eden which was the last full full length that we put out um that i've had to modify to play live or there's songs that we just straight up we're like i don't think we're ever going to play this live not because this the entire song is impossible but because like i would just write stuff and piece it together and then not realize it that it wasn't physically realistic yeah. to do you know um and uh and that bit me in the ass a number of times you know so it was uh i had i had to get into it wasn't until i got into like you know an actual touring circuit you know my first tour was with this band called this of the apocalypse so like you toured with that band bands. yeah that was the very first tour i did was filling in on guitar for them and it was the last tour that they ever did under that name they, they've relaunched as, as hawk now you know now that like and they've gotten some traction because you know ricky's in ice nine now and um you know so they've been doing pretty well independently for themselves but yeah i the the last tour that toda ever did under that name i i filled it on guitar for them that was the first time that I felt, and I needed that. I, I needed that pressure again of like, it's not my band. I can be fired. I can be kicked out of this. So like I had to like really work and, and get everything perfect. Um, and it was around that time where I started sort of shying away from that method of production and being a little bit more, you know, I still, I still have to piece things together sometimes, but it's not nearly as egregious as it used to be. You know, hearing this, makes me feel really confident in uh and not like an old man yelling at clouds all the times that i've told people to actually write stuff that's playable there's mm -hmm. a reason for it there's a reason for it reason being that a you're going to make music that feels better and b you're going to actually be able to play it uh in a live situation to play it kind of kind of important kind of matters right. just a little bit not just saying that stuff to sound angry or anything should be able to play this stuff yeah and i mean not only should it be physically attainable but you should want like when you get it so like, let's say you write something that is playable but you piece it together even if you learn to play it perfectly it's never going to sound the same no because especially especially you know some some guys the way that they track or edit i should say guitars 
when it's hyper edited like that there's like like the pick attack is gone and it just sounds it sounds like a midi instrument basically and you know if you like that sound you like that sound i personally don't know how anyone could ever like that sound thank you but uh yeah but uh but you should want you like when you are able to play that riff as best as you can possibly play and you think you got it fucking perfect and there's no flaws or whatever but it's still never going to sound like that if you record it that way so your band is never going to be as tight live as you want it to be yeah you know so like even when i have to piece riffs together i will make sure that like you know okay we have to slide in it like we're starting we're starting you know halfway through the bar but we have to slide into this note because we slid out of the last one yeah. you know what i mean like just like common sense things which i guess is is only common sense when you've had like production experience but um but just keeping the mechanics in mind and like you want the final product to sound uh like it was played i mean I- even if it was even if it was pieced together I don't even like the sound of comped guitars. It still sounds wrong to me. It still sounds yeah. wrong to me. Like well, you're, you're you, but uh, I, I definitely <laughs> think that there's there's a, there's a way to punch things in. Punching is uh, different, or comp them to make the make things sound real. But uh, you have to be very careful. You have to take into consideration the kinds of things that Chris was just saying about how you go into certain notes and the next and out section. of other notes. Like yeah. all that has the glue between the notes has to be there or nothing good happens. It sounds like a guitar pro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just, it's just not going to say, it's not going to sound human. It's not going to sound genuine. So it's a, it's a similar thing to programming drums. You know, like uh, a lot of my work is programmed drums. Uh, the illustrium EP was programmed drums. The new record is going to be programmed drums. Cause we didn't have a drummer for either of those, but I, am meticulous about the way that I program drums. Obviously, while I'm writing the parts, everything's 127 and full velocity and 100% of the grid and whatever. But once it's written and when it's time to like put it into album form, I will go in and like meticulously, you know, randomize the velocities and make sure that on blast beats and fast fills and stuff things are things are a lot quieter and I'll make sure to to like randomize the positioning of the hits and sort of knock them off the grid a little bit and like I I spend days and days uh like perfecting the the program drums that I do and then I bounce them as audio files and I mix it like a real kit and whatever like cuz I want I don't I don't want it to sound fake you know i like to a certain degree it'll never sound 100% human because you know the you can fix all those velocities and make them quiet and whatever but it's still the most perfect version of that quiet velocity so that human element still isn't there but like i want it i want it to sound like the most perfect version of a human take as opposed to a programmed drum thing and it's the same thing with guitars you want it you want everything to sound like it was played i agree well chris i think this is a good place to uh end the episode um i want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us it's always a pleasure sir yeah I, i'm super stoked that you guys invited me on i'm a big fan of the podcast so thank you it was a good time and um, it's great to hear your voice finally now i can put a voice to all those stupid messages i get <laughs> <laughs> you mean and a face yeah and a face of no mainly the voice i've already seen the face you know instagram yeah but the face talking to you oh that's yeah that's different. true actually that's very very true yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes down to it, everyone's got to go back to the basics. There's no way to escape it. Like, no. There's the old wife's tale saying 
if you can't play it slow, you can't play it fast. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen a few people who kind of don't agree with that, but they're freaks. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're freaks. Um, you have to go back to the basics, look at your picking, look at where you hold tension, play things slowly, work on your timing, all that stuff. You do all that stuff and everything gets better. That's kind of the philosophy for everything in life, really, if you think about it. If you, it like, take, if you take a building, for example, you wouldn't build this beautiful piece of architecture without its foundations. Or, I mean, you could try. You could try and it'll fall down. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're asking for a disaster if you do that. Have you ever had a time period in your life where you've had to just deconstruct your playing? Oh, yeah. And kind of go back to the beginning? Yeah, quite a few times, actually. The The last major time I had to do it was after an accident, actually. So we were on tour with Dead Letter Circus, 2013, to be exact. And uh, at the Glasgow show, which was at the Classic Grand, there was a, a water spillage on stage, which I decided would be a good idea to fall on. And I landed on my right wrist. It sounds like a great idea. Oh, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. Best idea I've ever had. <laughs> and full of them, man. I know, right? Um, I fell on my right wrist and for the, I couldn't play the rest of the show. My wrist just wasn't moving at all. And for the last, four, well, four years after that point, I always used to get this weird sensation in the muscle between the thumb and the first finger. Um, the little knot thing, you know, ever so occasionally now, maybe once a year, it'll just, I can feel it a little bit and I just have to redo the stretches that I managed to work out to sort of readjust basically from that point. So yeah, I mean, when that happens, it does happen occasionally. I just have to go back and think, right, what did I do? Um, and go through that process again, just to make sure that it's not affecting anything. And does it? It definitely helps. Yeah. When I focus on the exercises just to make that a little bit better anything from stretching through to just like making sure that I'm not pressing too hard on the pick that's one of the big things that I have actually where I just I'm really pressing my thumb and first finger into that pick because the last thing I want to do is drop it so I have to you know if that happens and I feel it then I just have to remember all right I need to stop tensing those two fingers together so hard um and that's kind of what I tend to focus on most of the time when I'm trying to bring back the technique to basics. Because obviously, like, you know, as Chris said, everyone does tense. There's no real way to escape it. It's just understanding it. And once you understand it, then you can start applying the knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Do we cover it at all on the site? Uh, we talk about tension of the body, for sure. We should definitely talk about that more on the site, actually, I think. I think it's time for a for a new one. What do you reckon? Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. That's what I was thinking during this whole episode was we should we should do some content about staying relaxed and dealing with tension. Should uh should get my girlfriend's sister in and we start showing some yoga classes. Is that what she does? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she does. I mean, everyone that I know that does yoga seems to be really quite relaxed in every aspect of their life. Man, yoga is a game changer. Everyone should uh, should do it. Not everybody will, but uh, the difference in people's quality of life when they do yoga is nuts. Yeah, I think it's I need to do that. It's fucking hard, too, by the way. I do. So I did, uh, in, what, 2012 to 2013, I started doing the insanity workout. Oh, God. Uh, I'm sure you guys know that. And, you know, the dry heaving that ensued. <laughs> yeah, the opposite of yoga. 
No, but the stretches during that was based off of yoga. And I always yes. used I always used to find that that was the point where I used to sweat the most because it was just so intense in a different way. It's not like you're running out of energy because your heart's racing at 10,000 beats per minute. It's just that holding those positions for that amount of time is actually really quite difficult, but it definitely, when you've done it, you feel this sense of like all of the tension in your body is completely gone and it's actually quite soothing. Maybe I should do it again. Can't hurt the guitar playing. They definitely can't. No. So I think it's been a pleasure talking to you. I would say that anyone who wants to get better at rhythm guitar and get the basics back under control, go to riffhard.com, check out the down picking gym, just do it get your shit together it will get your shit together for sure yeah absolutely as you heard chris is a very advanced player he didn't give himself much credit so for him checking that out was more to kind of just confirm that he was on the right path he didn't necessarily feel like he needed all the exercises in there but not very many people are as advanced as chris is he's very humble he is he doesn't uh he doesn't let on how good he is but he is one of the best out there um and even he got something out of it so there's always scope to learn always yeah doesn't matter how good you think you are like there's always going to be something that someone's done that you can learn from exactly and with that it's been a pleasure talking to you brown i bid you farewell sir take it easy bye Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.